This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Kautzman and at Brad Kelly. With Art of Darkness, Kevin Kautzman here in the great state of Minnesota, the city of St. Paul, with Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you? Yeah. Just had a wedding upstate. Uh, woo, woo. My lockdown is, lockdown a, is over. Lockdown is done. Yeah. We're lock- done. <laughs> I think what is I, that John Lennon uh, war is over if you want it? Lockdown is over if you want it. Lockdown is over if you want it, and we want it, and yeah. we never want it back again. That's, that's right. Yeah. So well, that's good. So, that's good. I'm glad. That sounds fun. I got to put some duds on. I got dapper. I'm a dapper Dan man. I put on some fun. My finest pomade, <laughs> and uh, and we have we have one for you coming up soon too. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, six weeks or. Too soon for me to think about. Yeah, so, right. You know, well, uh, it's it's June 2021, but these are these are evergreen episodes of our absolutely. show about the dark side of artists and creatives. And on this episode, Brad is taking the helm. Brad, who are we talking about today? We're talking about the one and only Rod Serling. So, Rod Serling. Now, when you first said the name to me, I had no idea who you were talking about. Yeah, that's interesting. I was that was surprised. I I guess I was surprised by that, but you huh. know. I'm always, I never know. I always assume that everybody has the same cultural references I do. So, right. You know. I, I was late to get into Led Zeppelin. I should have been a Led Zeppelin fan early in my 20s, but it was only in the uh, latter half that I even started to get it. You never well, know. Fair, well, fair enough. Well, what do you, Kevin, as our, tra- our, our tradition uh, requires, what do you know about Rod Serling? Well, I didn't go in entirely blind here. So mm-hmm. I know that Rod Serling, from our conversations, was the creator of. What is it? How does it go? I can't do it. The Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone. I don't think that's the theme music exactly, but we'll let it stay. That was something, maybe the Batman theme music a little bit. Yeah, that was a little bit of the Batman theme. That's all right. It's the same era. It's the same exact Classic, Classic television. I'm going to confess that I am not a Twilight Zone guy. I'm willing to be convinced, but you don't get... What is it? Black Mirror. Yeah. You don't get X Files. No. You don't get Twin Peaks. All this high weirdness. Oh yeah, not to mention like Outer Limits. Mm. Um, there's a whole bunch of anthology shows in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and you know all throughout. So not that X Files was an anthology show, but they had their Monster of the Week episodes. You know, so definitely. And 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 the making space for the weird in television is sort of what the Twilight Zone did. So. So, yeah, even if you're, it doesn't really, you know, you aren't as fond of the old episodes as I am, I, they're still, they still mark an important place in the history of television. And, and I feel like this is the most sort of pop culture figure we've done so far. 
I uh, think so. I mean, Oscar Wilde is yeah. sort of pop culture in his time, but this yeah. is Americana, high right. Americana. Yes. Yes, and of course, I'm very curious about because this is a show about the dark side of artists and their sort of weirder, freakier side. And I assume a fellow who made a show such as as this uh, had a bit of a, a quirky life. So I'm very yeah. curious. Yeah, no, there, there's a, it's a, it's relevant for our show. That's for sure. So, um, so we'll get into it a little bit. You know, as we mentioned, Rod Serling, most famous for the Twilight Zone. Um, I should say he not only created it and produced it, um, was the host and sort of face of the Twilight Zone, it being an anthology series. Oh, that's wanted... the guy. So the guy who, who comes on and says yes. the famous lines. Yeah, what what just, is the line? We're uh, something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a dimension beyond space and time. I actually have it like written out here. Um, <laughs> All right. Because he has a great, he has a great, in my opinion, a fantastic voice. Mm. And he talked in this very clipped, um, very kind of stylized fashion. So... Um, he became known. He became known for that, and as we'll find out. I mean, he was the most famous writer in America for a while Whoa. because because he was also the face of this television show, right? And he wrote the vast majority of the Twilight Zone episodes. A lot of people thought that he was just sort of the creator, you know, an actor that they'd hired to to bring out of the front. But he was actually the he was actually the sort of creative engine behind the whole thing. The bulk so, of the series, dude. The bulk of the series, dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just watched Big Lebowski last night. All right. Um, yeah. So the, I, literally, when I saw that scene, I was like, "Oh yeah, Rod Serling." Yeah, yeah. Same the deal. Bulk of the series. Bulk yeah. Of the series. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great scene. <laughs> so, um, so Rod Serling, uh, born nineteen uh, Christmas Day of nineteen twenty-four in Syracuse, New York. Um, he was the uh, he was the younger brother by six years, um, and he would eventually grow up in Binghamton, New York, which, if I'm not mistaken, is Camille Pag. Paglia territory. Yeah, uh, she's from the snow belt from, up there. She's yeah. from down there. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know, we're down in the. It's not quite upstate New York. It's still, I guess, central New York, but it's almost Pennsylvania, to be honest. Um, it's right down there near the border. Anything that is north of Yonkers or west of Yonkers <laughs> is upstate New York. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. Um, so you know. It, I'm going to talk about his parents a little bit because I think there's a lot of important, uh, con- just like all of these artists, there's a lot of important context for the people and the places that they're from. And I think we'll see that place is just as important in, in um, Serling's life as any of the people we've talked about so far. Um, but first, I want to talk a little bit about his father, Sam Serling, Samuel Serling, who's a pretty interesting guy. Um, Samuel Serling was the child of uh, Jewish Lithuanian immigrants, actually, in Detroit, uh, which is interesting to me because I don't know of any Lithuanian community here whatsoever. So I'm kind of curious about, you know, why were they here? But um, nevertheless, he was a he was a sort of a he was a tinkerer and he probably would have been an engineer if he had had the opportunity to. Um, But Interestingly, what he did to try and uh, Samuel Serling, what he did to get money was he became a secretary. He went to secretary school, which huh. basically no men did at this time in, hmm. in the in the nineteen teens. There was, you know, this was, this was there were as rare as women owning businesses were male secretaries essentially. Um, he met uh, a woman in Auburn, New York, Esther Cooper, who is a Russian-born daughter of Lithuanian immigrants, and this would they would be eventually become married. So, so Serling is the 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 offspring of two Lithuanians, essentially. 
Um, um, there was some struggles early on because Esther came from an ortho, literally from an Orthodox family, and there were concerns about. And Samuel Sterling was not nowhere near Orthodox, so there were definitely concerns about you know th- this marriage. Um, however, Samuel Sterling, much like his son Rod Sterling, was super charismatic, impossible not to like. Um, and could basically just talk anybody into anything he wanted. And, so. and this, this is the guy who wanted to be a secretary? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, he, he for whatever reason, hmm. and well, actually, the reason he became a secretary was because he'd been working all these menial jobs, and then he went into a business, and he saw a secretary, like, making actual decisions. And he's like, well, if I can't go to school, and I can't afford to get, become an engineer, I can't do these other things, I need to do something where at least I get to make a decision. Gee whiz, I'm going to learn how to type. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what, for whatever, for what it's worth. Now, so he, so he, he talks Esther's uh, uh, father into it being okay that they get married. He says he's going to keep a kosher house. And then from there on, he basically never mentions anything about, be, uh, about uh, Judaism again. Um, now, the one thing that he does do is Esther's father runs a chain of grocery stores and Samuel Sterling eventually talks him into uh, letting him run one um, and then eventually runs his own down in, uh, in uh, Binghamton where, where Rod is eventually born. But there is a detour along the way and I find this fascinating. So the Panama Canal was getting built at this time, right? Samuel Sterling obsessed with the Panama Canal just as an engineer, tinkery kind of guy. He talked himself into getting a job as a secretary to an engineer working on the Panama Canal. He did not tell his wife until the, literally the night after they got married that that's where they were going to go. Oh, wow. They, so he took her on a honeymoon to Panama and they came back six years later. Holy moly. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So anyway, so they come back. She's pregnant with um, Rod's older brother. And then a few years later, we get Rod. Now, Rod is a... Uh, Rod is a incredibly charismatic person everybody loves him from the time he's a little kid um chatty talkative kind of handsome you know just just imminently likable um and he's in this town binghamton binghamton is actually pretty fascinating i dug in dug into the history of this a little bit it was like a melting pot of european ethnic minorities russians polish jews uh I'm sorry, Jews from those places, but also sure. non-Jews from those places. Check. Right. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't really match what we would call diversity now, but for the time, it was a pretty diverse and place. These are the are these principally Ellis Island people, or a little yeah. before that? Yeah, okay. there was a time where people would come over over Ellis Island, and they would ask which way to EJ, and what EJ was was Endicott Johnson, a boot a boot and shoe manufacturer in Bing- Binghamton, New York. Huh. And the George Johnson who ran Endicott Johnson was like this, by all accounts, like legitimately benevolent capitalist mogul guy. He took extremely good care of his, his personnel. They all kind of drew, they all kind of tightened their, per, their uh, they kind of tightened their belts when the Great Depression happened. So basically everybody got through and you didn't have to lay anybody off. You're I'm just recoiling uh, with skepticism. <laughs> As you say I this, I know, and I actually uh. went on like a, I went on like a sidetrack. I was like, "Is it really?" And <laughs> everything I found, it seemed okay. legitimate. So, wow. I mean, well, there used to be a sense of noblesse oblige. Uh, sure, right. know, This wasn't the gig economy at the time, R- right? We're right. going to take care of our our boys, and they're going to take care of their families, and we're going to get through. Gosh darn it! This right. is America, <laughs> right? Exactly. Now it's just like 
Yeah. You have no, five sorry. jobs we, and no yeah, healthcare I mean, now. Yeah, who right. needs it? Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, we got uh, we got people who technically work for a, a near trillionaire who don't get bathroom breaks. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, so and part of this was not only economically; it was it was a you know pretty good place to live, but um, because it was so everybody was so new to it there were so many immigrants and they were all desperate to assimilate there was actually a fair amount of like racial harmony right it, it, there wasn't there wasn't the kind of conflicts you expect could happen in an environment mm. like this right. and it would actually create the setting uh, the idyllic um american utopia that we imagine, you know, when we think back or when, you know, when people who, when trads, when trads think sure, back, sure. they think this is what a small town could have been like. It seems right. like Binghamton sort of was like that. And Rod Serling certainly remembered Binghamton. A little bit like of a that. Norman Rockwell. We all pull together. We're all mm -hmm. Americans now. Yeah. The excitement yeah. of being in America. We've left the old world behind and now it's yeah. nothing but yeah. promise. Right, right. And if we just work hard and we're honest and we, you know, we take mm. care of each other, we're gonna we're all gonna we're make gonna it. make it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Which is right. Kind of beautiful. I mean mm. it's 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 so nice it sounds cheesy, but really like mm. What's wrong yeah. with that, right? Right. And and so this setting the the this setting ends up um engendering these themes that come up in Sterling's work again and again. So the small town thing, he actually, he was also, um, he's going to survive through the McCarthy era, right? He's also, he's def certainly not a communist and he really valued like business and understood what they were trying to do because he'd seen this Endicott Johnson thing, I think. And it was, he thought, well, business can do great things, right? We can all like team up and <laughs> have this great, this great world together. And, you know, people get to make money and you get to drive a big fancy car if you work hard enough and all of that. Um, so that kind of thing comes through and shows through in his work and his life. So one thing I want to do, because um, the Twilight Zone to me is fascinating. I absolutely loved it as a kid and watched, watched a few of them recently in preparation for this. And I don't want to say it holds up exactly because there's no TV from the early 60s is really going to hold up, right? It's just too, the technology is too off, the, the timing is all wonky and whatever. But what I will say is like, they still kind of work, I guess. Mm. Um, they're mm -hmm. entertaining, they're interesting, the acting is halfway decent some of the times, the writing is, the dialogue is pretty good. Um, the, the plot is o almost always... Uh, it's kind of ironic and a little bit of a little bit of a thinker as far as like mainstream TV goes. So I'm going to just pepper in some premises, premises. Is that the plural of premise? Premises. Premises. Yeah. Got it. Premises. Got it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Na yeah. Nailed yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so um, and, and so I want to talk about a couple episodes that really nail drive home this uh, uh, small town thing for Sterling. So. Um, one of the first episodes is an episode called um, Walking Distance. Walking Distance, a 36-year-old man, Martin Sloan, an exhausted NYC ad exec. Half of the, sh half of the stuff Sterling wrote was about a, a, like an exhausted 
ad executive for some reason, but <laughs> it was like the prototypical man. Everybody was a 35 year old ad executive. Yeah. Or a little bit of a mad men archetype. I work on <laughs> yeah. Madison Avenue right. and I'm in advertising, but right. I live and in the, I live in the suburbs and I've got yeah. my wife and my two kids and my dog fits and we're right. all, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. And so he's talking, he would talk often about how that, the, the, the jadedness that you can arrive at in that lifestyle, right? Uh-huh. So you've got this ad executive, he's driving cross country he, when he st- and he stops um, and he realizes on his road trip, he's very near his childhood hometown. So he decides he's just going to walk there. I don't remember if his car broke down or what. Um, and when he gets there, the town is exactly the town it was when he was a little boy. Hmm. Um, so he goes into a drugstore and he has an ice cream soda and he has all these memories of his past and he talks, you know, he remembers these people and these things and it's this very idyllic, like, you know, the, the 50s postcard kind of world. Um, eventually, he runs, this guy runs into his parents in this pe- previous time. He's trying to convince his parents that he is their son. He succeeds only in proving his insanity. Martin tries to warn his younger self to enjoy his childhood before it is too late, but his advances scare young Martin, who falls off the merry-go-round and injures his leg. Finally, the father confronts him. Having seen the papers in Martin's wallet and now believing him to be who he says he is, he tells him to return to his own time in which Martin finds himself walking with a new limp. So this is like a very classic Twilight Zone sort of setup. Um, There's this like ironic twist at the end where like, well, it could have all been a dream, but yet there's this (laughs) thing that comes that is carried across, right? And of course, you've got the small town thing, which is which was big for him. Another show. When did the show premiere? 1959. 59. All right. Yeah, so we're, yeah. we're into the beats in, in New oh, York yeah. are happening, but it's not mm-hmm. quite yet. The Beatles. Uh, right, right, right. right. Elvis. Mm-hmm. 1959 mm-hmm. to 1965. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, so you got, you know, post, uh, post new, um, you know, post Hiroshima, like paranoia, cold warish stuff happening. We're you know, it's that. a very, yeah. Korea. Yeah, it's a very, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's one of the most popular shows on TV during that time. So you can imagine it fits right in there to the yeah. The we're idea in we're in a 60s. weird new place now. Something mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. is like a metaphor for the the general kind of uneasiness and American paranoia. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I never thought that when I was watching it as a kid, but now sure. I totally do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so at the time was it was it ABC, CBS, NBC? Was it still the the big three? Or? Basically, yeah, yeah. There was CBS was what um, Twilight Zone was on, but early on, especially this was starting to change when the Twilight Zone came on because Twilight Zone was all filmed. Um, that is, it was like recorded video, whereas you know, ten years before that, almost everything you saw on TV was actually going to be live. Uh-huh. Um, just for techn- now it's uh, the dick van dyke show <laughs> right, right right just for technological reasons it, sure. they, they, it took them a while to figure out how to do it um but because of this oftentimes the east coast and the west coast had totally different programming um you could have uh, you know at one point serling works for a cincinnati station and he's writing all of the content for the cincinnati station like he's writing a sitcom like a dramatic show and he's writing commercials and he's it just worked very differently back then. And these were shows that you would only see in Cincinnati, right? So it's kind of strange. Um, so talking a little bit, I don't want to spend too much time in his childhood. I mean, I kind of already said how well-liked he was. He was talkative, intelligent, charismatic, um, maybe extremely so. 
Um, it turns out that he would be very short. I couldn't get a fixed number, but the impression I got was something around five foot four was his was his height. He was a short guy, which bothered him, which made him not popular with the girls, though he probably otherwise would have been. So instead of being five four, he was a manlet. Yeah, yeah, he was a very little guy. That's so yeah. funny because uh, when you think of him on the TV, you don't think yeah. of that. You think, oh, well, he would have never trick, been, right? He would have never been filmed in a way you could tell he was always short. like a mid uh, mid body shot and yeah, yeah no perspective. Yeah. He's right. not going to get mogged by a, a, a Winklevoss or anything like that <laughs> no, on camera. No, yeah. No, hey, good no. for him. I, res- yeah. I respect that. I yeah, mean, hey, he was, you, gotta, you know, he was, yeah, he, you got to work gotta do. with what, uh, what God gave you. Yeah. And he was very concerned with, he was very concerned with his image in all ways. And we're going to see some of that, but like the start, starting with how short he was, I mean, he's five foot four ish, 118 pounds when he graduates high school. Um, so oh, of course he had to be charismatic. It was yeah. that or, or get stuffed into a locker. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and everybody liked him. People's parents liked him. He, there's, huh. You can't find anything bad about him as a kid, right? You're going to make it in show business, yeah. kid. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Now, being born in 1924, when you're 18, it is 1942. And 1942, as an American young man, you pretty much went to World War II. Yeah. So he goes to World War II. Now, there's some debate about whether he signed up or was drafted, but but whatever the case, he wanted to go. And he actually, when he showed up in Fort Niagara, he decided he wanted to be a paratrooper because paratroopers had status. Mm -hmm. And he needed, he had already learned from, from high school and, you know, telling jokes and telling stories and, you know, becoming popular and those kinds of things that he thrived on attention. Right. Hmm. And so he, first day he sees some paratroopers walking. He's like, I need to be those guys. Those guys are dressed sharp. Everybody respects them. Right. They're this elite thing. I got to yeah. be one of those guys. Well, you have to have uh, balls of steel to be a paratrooper. And yes. in World War II, it's like, yes. we're going to fly you over enemy lines. Yes. You're going to drop in and you're going to do these particular things. Yeah. And there are some yeah. stories out of uh, the World Wars of, of things that paratroopers accomplish that are just incredible. Oh, yeah. Oh, these yeah. Guerrilla he- missions in, in the back. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Totally and he, wild. He, so he, now he wanted to sign up for this. And at first they told him he was too short. So he came back and they didn't let him do it. He came back and once again, he convinced, he talked to this colonel because the Serling boys get what the Serling boys want. <laughs> he talked and hey, I respect that. Like Yo. the, you just walk into a room and like, this is what I want. And I'm not, I'm not leaving until I get it. Essentially. Right, right. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm kind of like, oh man, I got to do that a little more. <laughs> right, how right. To. You got to be, um, you got to be assertive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he does, he does become a, um, he does become a paratrooper or, or he's allowed to, um, try right he's got to do basic training and there's there's some other specialized training Mm -hmm. and stuff Mm -hmm. but he does he does fine he's 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 despite how small he is he's strong and he's fit and you know he he can he can handle himself a little bit um and in the time where they're basically being waited to deploy he actually starts boxing competitively um he wins 17 out of 18 fights and the only thing he loses is the regional catchweight fight um, you know, he's fighting other little guys. <laughs> yeah, right, right. This, is, this hey, isn't Mike Tyson. The same size. Sure. 17, you beat up 17 guys your size, one after another, who know how to fight a little bit. That's, that's pretty good. Pretty good. Um, huh. I didn't know that yeah. he, was a, he was a boxer. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and this, of course, is a time when boxing was a major, major sport. Oh, yeah. Not this, not this clown yeah. show that we have now. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no. It was, like, it was like baseball and boxing. I, I don't know what else. Big time. 
I don't know what other sport people would have been paying attention to Co- football, college football, like, you know, I, I mean, the, the big, big sports at the time were definitely going to be baseball and boxing was huge. And of course, right. there's a lot of serious boxing going on. I'm not sure. talking smack, but I mean, yeah. the, the, the fact of the matter is America uh, really only gets interested in boxing when, when we have world champion heavyweights. Right. And we right. haven't had that in a long time. Yeah. I, I totally right. respect that. That is, it's got to be one of the most difficult sports in the world oh, that yeah. UFC, the whole thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah, we've I got see. this, what Jake Paul fighting uh, Mayweather. <laughs> I can't Mayweather. even, I, my brain is just melting out of my ears uh, oh, at this. I mean, yeah. it's like YouTube yeah. versus the, the greatest pound for pound boxer Dude, of all the, time. The thing Jake is Jake Paul can't handle Floyd Mayweather, but Jake Paul can handle himself. is it. Is it, I think it's Logan Paul. Oh, fighting Logan maybe Paul. Right. Yeah. yeah I haven't right. followed that close, but I watched a little bit of Logan Paul. That dude can handle himself. Yeah, like, I'm not if you gonna, go to the yeah. if you go to the bar, that guy can beat up probably everybody in the bar. Well, so, and they are gonna make a lot of dough. They are so, gonna make a lot of Dogecoin. I'm not. <laughs> that's right. I'm not gonna watch it. But hey, yep. man, hey. get it, get it. Yep, you gotta get go. what you can. So okay, so. Um, disappointingly Sterling ends up going to the Pacific theater. You know, he's a Jewish guy and he'd been hearing about the Holocaust. His father had been, his father had been very early on the dangers of, of Hitler. He like, wanted to go kill some Nazis. He did man. Mm. And, and good for him. Right. Cause who deserved it more than them. Right. At that time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So he ends up, he ships off to, to New Guinea initially and he becomes very popular among among the regiment um you know he's the jokester he's always known for dirty jokes pranks chatting telling stories everybody always everybody anything you read about him where someone knew him personally will say something along these lines of like oh we just love to listen to him tell stories oh he was always had a joke you'd never heard something like that right so he becomes very popular and at one point in this waiting for action this is when he decides what he's going to do he says you know, there are a million words on the radio. We're listening to the radio all the time. Somebody's got to be writing these. And I don't see why I can't make money doing this. Right. So he kind of decides this, but he's, you know, he's in the middle of, he's in the middle of Pacific theater. It's not how, does, how does he, yet. how is he not at this point overcome with, with self doubt? Right. How is he not crushed <laughs> by the blank page, Brad? He's gotten everything he's ever wanted for his entire life. Okay. Okay. Mostly through force of will. Love it. Great. <laughs> right. Okay. So now everything's, you know, it's kind of fun so far. They haven't seen any action or whatever, but eventually they get deployed to the Philippines. Um, and specifically they get um, deployed to an island called, I believe it's called Late in the Philippines. L-E-Y-T-E. Late, Late. Lady, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, lady, that's what I've heard. I don't know, yeah. but yeah. So mm-hmm. this is what had happened here fundamentally, and I'm sure I'm missing things. This was a I, big, big battle. It, it was a big battle, yeah. and it yeah. lasted for a long time. So there was a there was a fierce naval engagement, and what ended up happening was many Japanese soldiers ended up on this island, and they sent the Allied forces basically went in and were you know we're going to wipe them out or imprison them or what or get them to leave this island. Right, this is going to be a standoff. Um, Sterling, despite being a paratrooper, gets like, you know, steps off the boat with all of the, his regiment and other regiments onto this island. And they don't leave for months. Mm. Um, at first, it's kind of just waiting around, but then they begin to slowly march across the island with the idea of flushing out Japanese soldiers. And it's once it gets going, it is firefights every night. It is hiding in foxholes, listening for sounds, standing up and just firing into the darkness. It's 
every you night. You saw action big time. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Hmm. You know, and every night you woke up and there were bodies and you just hoped there were more Japanese bodies and allied bodies. Like, and for, for the, the and, and is this, this is like jungle fighting? Oh yeah. This is like, we don't see jungle fighting like this again until Vietnam. Until Vietnam. Basically. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and here was another thing that happened as well. So they were supposed to get airdropped supplies as they were marching across this island. The um, airstrip that was supposed to resupply them was attacked by the Japanese and that, that supply line got cut. And so they were literally, Serling and his regiment were literally fighting all night, um, eating, drinking rainwater and eating edible roots all Oof. day. Yow. By the time he got through to the end of it, um, and it was basically considered a success, but you know, I don't know that Serling considered it all a success. Sure. He had lost 18 pounds. Now he only weighed 118 pounds. So he walks out of the woods, you know, a different man, a uh, hundred pounds, five foot four, 19 years old, had been fighting gun in gunfights for weeks at a time. Um, and you know, he never really there's there's a degree to which you never come back from that now he doesn't just go home he then gets sent deeper into the philippines um a city called luzon and some of i learned a little bit about the pacific theater that i didn't know about eventually he was going to get sent to manila manila was some of the fiercest fighting and most um torturous killing outside of uh, Warsaw and the entire all of World War II. So the there was Japanese, some grotesque stuff that happened oh in the uh, Pacific Theater. The Japanese yes. did some terrible things. Obviously, yeah. it was not uh, yeah not a good a, time. There was a um, uh, the Japanese apparently killed a hundred thousand Filipinos in the city of Manila, which mm. I don't know how many people lived there at the time, but it was pretty crazy. Uh, obviously, a hundred thousand people in any city is a lot. Um, so there was this one bit, this is how, this is how intense the Pacific theater was. And, and, and Serling was on the doorstep of this. Um, word had come back from the first cavalry and paratroop units in Manila that the devastation in terms of human, human life surpassed anything they imagined. The re retreating Japanese angry at apparently losing the war, because this is towards the end, vented their frustrations on the Filipino people committing incredible acts of violence without provocation. Inside the walled cities, for instance, the Japanese herded several hundred Filipinos into a room measuring 10 feet by 10 feet by 20 feet, then sealed the door shut. Days later, when the suffocated and crushed human bodies began to decay, the gases from the corpses caused an, caused an explosion, blowing the door off its hinges. Other reports mentioned that nuns and priests had been crucified on the crucifixes in their churches and that Filipino women had had Japanese bayonets plunged into them and ripped up toward their necks. So this was the darkness that Sterling was on sort of on the doorstep of, right? Now, not much later, um, I think he was in for two years. He comes, he, um, he's after some, he supposedly got some injuries. It's kind of ambiguous. He did get a purple heart. He claimed to have shrapnel, but excuse me, biographers haven't been able to find that. It was very ambiguous. I'm not sure what happened, but in a way, who cares? Right? <laughs> he, um, I'm just still reeling from the idea of you've got this 118-pound uh, boxer from Binghamton, New York, which is like a Rockwell painting thrust yeah. into this uh, horror. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, and so let's, and this, this lasted with him for the rest of his life. So I'm going to do the thing I did about small towns. I'm going to give you a Twilight Zone premise. A episode that he wrote it's one called a equality of mercy 
A, gung, a young gung-ho American in World War II, Second Lieutenant Cattell, orders his war-weary soldiers to make a near-suicidal attack on a group of sick and wounded Japanese soldiers holed up in a cave. Sergeant uh, Cazzarano, who knows the men have had enough of war, tries to talk him out of it. The attack will accomplish nothing but pointless deaths on both sides, but Cattell pulls rank and stands firm on his orders, intent on proving himself. Suddenly, Lieutenant um, Cattell finds himself in Corregidor three years earlier in the war and gets a new perspective. He has become Lieutenant Yamuri in the Japanese army and is, atta- uh, and is ordered to attack a group of American soldiers in the cave. In vain, he tries to dissuade the captain from the attack, but the Japanese cl- um, captain believes the young man is sick with jungle fever or worse, has lost his nerve. He tells him to straighten up or stay with the wounded. His mind reeling from what he has just experienced, Cattell finds himself back in 1945 as the American soldier with his men telling him that they've gotten word the atomic bomb has been dropped. They've been ordered not to attack the cave and fall back. The young man seems relieved in light of his revelation. Right, so Serling, despite having fought in this war and despite, you know, being I, um, being I to, what is it from Big Lebowski, being I to I in the jungle or something like that? Man in the black pajamas. <laughs> That's a worthy adversary. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, <laughs> Serling, Serling, his number one, he, we'll get into his politics a little bit, but his biggest thing, he thought the root, sort of the root of all evil was, uh, could be drawn down to bigotry, was people hating each other because of what group that they belonged to. And this is despite all this, you know, it'd be very easy for a young man without a lot of other experiences to come back and have real issues with Japanese people, right? I think, um, not that they'd be right, but it'd be, you can understand the psychology of that. Sure, without a doubt. I mean, and then beyond all of that, there was so much dehumanizing propaganda uh, on all sides that you wouldn't really, can't really... I mean, obviously you want to, well, anyway, we understand yeah. what was yeah. going you, on. You understand how yeah. you get to that point. Serling never apparently got that. Serling always, and maybe he learned it here or maybe he learned it before <clears throat> in Binghamton. He, you know, he didn't have, uh, he, he didn't truck for any kind of bigotry whatsoever. And he thought it was really the problem. And in fact, despite the fact that uh, them bombing Nagasaki and Hiroshima essentially prevent, allowed him to go home, he thought it was a terrible idea. He hated Douglas MacArthur. He said, I will hate that SOB until the day that I die. He didn't like how the war was carried out. You know, there was some issues there. Um, though he, by all accounts, did what he was supposed to do. He, you know, he was involved in urban warfare. He, he definitely, you know, he wasn't somebody who was shooting up in the air and pretending to shoot. He, he was in combat um, and, uh, you know, uh, in interviews even, um, reading this book, I read this book by, uh, it's really the only good biography, not the only good, there's two. Um, Joel Engel wrote this book called Rod Serling. Um, Rod Serling definitely um, got a couple casualties um, while he was over there, and who knows how many. Hmm. Um, he sounds like the guy you want on your dodgeball team. A little bit, yeah. 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 He sounds like well, a good guy to have in your corner. I think he was an intense guy, and he, he tried to do the right thing, too. I, this is the thing you, you kind of see through his life and his work and, and, and that sort of thing. I, I think he would have been a good guy to have in your crew. Um, you, but, you know, there was also... There's also some absurdity I wanted to mention just because last thing on the war in um, late, later, whatever, however we're saying that. Leyte, Leyte Gulf, that's what late, I've heard. Leyte. So once uh, they got their supply lines cut off and they finally got supplies after, after a while. And uh, this guy, Melvin Levy, who was, who was Rod Sterling's kind of best friend in the regiment, 
um, they see that they see the boxes coming down from the plane, but it's kind of foggy and kind of rainy and they can't quite see it. And uh, Melvin Levy literally gets a supply box dropped on his head. And oh no! There's, uh, there's no more Melvin Levy. Oh, and, oh Melvin! <laughs> oh, what a way to go! Right, you've been waiting for a couple of weeks. You're starving. You literally just ate some roots and like this you get killed down. by rations. <sighs> what a way to go! There's some absurdity. There's some deep irony and absurdity. To Pour that, one out right? for Melvin. Yeah, for real, for real. So, okay, so Sterling comes back to the United States. He enrolls in Antioch College. Um, he um, he was. I want to read something because veterans, particularly veterans who've seen some deep action, um, they often don't talk about it. And we're not going to talk about it much more after this one little bit. But he did struggle with what we would now call PTSD, most likely. Hmm. Um, and so, not long after he got back, his brother, um, his brother Bob, who is also a writer um, of some some pretty notable success, um, took him out to dinner. So. One occasion, Bob took, this is from the Joel Engel biography. On one occasion, this is shortly after the war, Bob took Rod and his date to the Wagon Wheel restaurant in Springfield, nine miles north of Yellow Springs, where Antioch College is, and where Dave Chappelle lives, apparently. Um, that, was, that was the night I realized how deeply his war experience had been etched in his brain, Bob says. He got bombed on Southern Comfort and started to fight the Battle of Leyte all over again. Serling was hallucinating and screaming. They're coming. They're coming through the doors. The Japs are coming. Nothing that Bob or Sherling's date or the restaurant manager did calmed him down. He was actually, actually repulsed by them and evaded their advances, fearing they were Japanese firing at him. When they finally took him out of the restaurant, Bob drove him back to the dorm, removed his clothes, shoved him into a cold shower, and put him in bed. When Sterling awakened the next day, he remembered nothing of the incident. Bob is convinced that his brother suffered the rest of his life from nightmares and resultant insomnia brought on by the war. Whoa. Yeah. Was was booze his medication of choice or did he move on to, to something did. else? Yeah, he kind of, mm. no, he, there's not a whole lot of evidence that he sort of fell down the alcohol, you know, there's there's tears to, to alcoholism. And it's not clear that he went much further than the first few steps, you know. Um, but yeah, certainly that was something that, that was, that was part of his life and, and kind of came up a little wow, bit so more later. Wow, so he got blackout drunk and he is back in the war. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, dog. Right. Right. Mm. Um, his penchant was cigarettes. He smoked <laughs> four packs a day. <laughs> um, it's very difficult. You can find some interviews with him that are like televised where he's not smoking. It is very difficult to find footage of him particularly in, from the 60s where he is not smoking a cigarette. Um, but yeah, so that was his thing. He, he, sucked those, he, he sucked those things back pretty good. And we're going to talk about an, an odd effect that that actually had in him that I'd never even heard of before. So, um, so anyway, he goes to Antioch College, apparently, you know, pretty good college. He interned at a bunch of radio stations. Sometimes he earned these jobs because his writing was pretty good because he now sort of dedicated himself at least somewhat to this I'm going to write for radio thing. Um, other, other people gave him jobs just because he had a really good voice. He had a great voice for radio. Um, so why not? He, um, he would, uh, work for radio stations in Ohio. He also worked for a radio station in, um, New York city. Um, but there's this transition happening because in, in television has sort of been quasi and not invented, but you're starting to get people have televisions in their home. 1949, the first sitcom comes on. Um, not long later, you've got, you know, 
Desilu Productions and all of that. So it's early days of ah, the laugh tracks. Ha, everything's <laughs> <Yeah>. ha. <laughs> well, the thing. Nobody knew what they were doing, which was great for <laughs> why don't we just Why don't we just pepper some laughs in Johnny? Ha. <laughs> right. Just like the, the man opens the door. Ha. Right. <laughs> There's this weird oh, yes. schizoid quality about. about oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> every definitely. time I watch an old sitcom, I just go, what is What on earth? You know, the man yeah, shaking his fist at his wife. <laughs> it's so funny. It is. It's, it's a Twilight Zone all its own. Oh, no. It? That's what's kind of weird. They all kind of, I feel like we watch a fair amount of I Love Lucy in our house. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they always feel like vaguely like Twilight Zone episodes to me. Like <laughs> I, I love some classic television. I just, oh, sure. I just think yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, they're yeah. definitely, I mean, they're, some of the writing is snappy and it's it's mm. not bad. It's just Mary Tyler Moore holds up. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, good stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's like watching a Minneapolis that, that no longer exists. So that's cool. <laughs> we, we love it. We need a Mary Tyler Moore reboot where she's wearing Kevlar the entire time. Right. right. You're not going to make it on your own, Mary. Oh, Mary Tyler. Mary needs to join a gang. <laughs> Uh, anyway yeah no yes. classic classic tv and this you know that must have felt too like a golden age on its own i mean television really oh, yeah. settled into a trashy kind of middle as it came of age but there it were did. always bright spots and uh, i'm sure right away i mean gee whiz you're going from radio now you're going to yeah. the bright new thing television it's gonna yeah, be big well, they, were, they were definitely still figuring it out it was like mm -hmm. there was hollywood had been going on for a long time unless you were you were a washout from hollywood you weren't going to go over and work for tv really the radio you know a lot of the radios were old dogs and they weren't going to change either um and it wasn't clear that tv was more prestigious than radio at that time either right i mean now you would think certainly working in tv is better than working in radio just opportunity wise but that wasn't necessarily clear then um so a lot of the stuff had the quality of like student productions which like i said was was perfect for serling because serling didn't have he had to talk his way into this basically right so why not i mean <laughs> this is that classic greatest generation yeah. boomer to a degree that's boomer right. generation that's wikipedia right. problem yeah, we have exactly. where you look at their wikipedias and you just go wait what how did right. he go from wait now he's a now he's a fulbright fellow but right. he never went to college like what right. like, or right. he, he flunked right. out of college but now yeah. he's got a job and he's directing spartacus like what, right. what? <laughs> he got d's in high school but then he got this job it was literally this this different yeah. world where you could just show up and yeah. be confident and have yeah, as long a, as, have as a long haircut. As like, yeah, as long as I had a haircut and some old man liked your spunk, like, or whatever. That was all. <laughs> you got a lot yeah. of spunk, kid. Yeah. You're going to make it. Yeah. 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 Right. So now yeah, today so, it's like, you know, just, yeah. What, where do you even begin? Right. 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 You got to so, intern for no money for three years to even have a shot. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so he, you know, so he's, he's, uh, he, he manages to, he works his way up, but it happens quickly. So he goes to work for this radio, uh, this TV station in Cincinnati, WLW, um, is after college. Um, and I, he, if I may, the, sure. the other thing, I, I'm not trying to to step on you here, Brad, because yeah, I right. know you're telling the story, but it, there's part of the difference too, is like, you're coming back from having seen the dirt, seen oh, yeah. hell on earth. Yeah. Uh, a radio station manager in Cincinnati, one is going to respect that, and two is not going to intimidate you at all. That's that's a good point. Nothing yeah. compares to Leyte and right, right. what you saw. 
Yeah, it's so, like this is just a guy. Yeah, I can uh, I can talk then. Is anybody yeah. shooting at me? No. Right, right. All right, I can <laughs> right. do it. Right, right. So yeah, you know that's a very good point. And and he he had a, and Sterling had a lot of confidence. I mean, that was part of his charisma was that you know he could hold court with anybody basically. And he was and this is the thing and and I'm over overstepping this. He was a very smart guy too. Mm. Like obviously the stuff that he wrote wasn't um, Shakespeare exactly, but the sheer volume of it. Mm. Um, bulk is, of the series, is, dude. Yeah. The bulk of the series in that in and of itself says something about for the, 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 the um, fertility of his brain. Right. So anyway, so that started to become clear to people. He writes a bunch of scripts for this show, this station in Cincinnati. They don't really go anywhere because it's only broadcast in Cincinnati. He's literally writing like soap commercials and like dramas and all of this stuff. So he's doing that. He's it's a crazy amount of work, but he's also trying to get freelance and he's sending out shows, scripts to other, to other broadcasters. And one of the ways that TV worked back then that was much different than it works now is you had a lot of, um, craft theater and the Lux theater and they were these shows that were anthology series that were sponsored almost entirely by one company and every episode was like a different thing they weren't continuous they were just like every Thursday the craft theater presents you a one-hour drama about no 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 right and so this is the yeah, this is the milieu that Sterling manages to get himself in. Jimmy works in a soup kitchen. Right. And he meets Janie, and she works in the front. Yeah, I and think I actually read about that one. He's just back from the war, right. Right. and he has a new kind of soup. Right. But Janie right. is skeptical. Right. Riveting. You gotta go into that. You gotta go into that David Lynch voice. <laughs> Damn good pie. <laughs> that's that's exactly that's exactly what it was like. JD has a polka polka dot dress this oh week. God. I'm kind of wishing I watched some of the old Sterling stuff, but I'm kind of wishing now that I had watched some of the other ones just to see see what they were like because I imagine they were very much like that. Oh old man God. Johnson has had a few again. <laughs> He stumbles in. Ah, you know. There's a yeah, lot yeah. of laugh, laugh yeah. track. <laughs> <laughs> so he writes, so Sterling isn't writing, Sterling isn't writing anything like science fiction now. He's writing dramas. They have, they all have, they're all like these very taut, the plots are very tight, they, you know, as they would be in an hour television show. Um, you can't, you know, He's not trying to. He's not trying to write like uh, Samuel Beckett or anything. They're they're, they're one hour dramas or half hour dramas, and they work. Here's out the really commercial well break, and, and this mm -hmm. is the place where we sell the soap, and then right, we come right. back, and yeah, yeah. right. And right. he's just yeah. so he's just the writing formula. These, he's writing these. They're they're, they're slowly uh, um, They're slowly getting the attention of producers and things like this. Um, he eventually gets something on um, the Hallmark Hall of Fame, which was a little bit more prestige. Um, and uh, so, okay, so one thing I wanted to say this before I get into these other things. So he's writing these shows, writing these shows. He saw himself or he was setting himself up. He wanted to be the new Arthur Miller, essentially, which is a laudable aim, I would say. It's in Death of a Salesman and the other author, Arthur Miller work. You, thought, you get to marry Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe, that's right. right. They were married, right? <laughs> they were, yeah, 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 hmm. yeah. So, you know, why not? That's a lot, that's a, that's a lofty goal. Um, and you know, he was, he also saw that, um, people like, pa um, Patty Chayefsky and even Gore Vidal 
had done good, what he considered mature, intelligent, thoughtful work inside of television. So, you know, Rod Serling thought, well, why the, why the heck can't I do this, right? Um, and so eventually he does. He gets a, he writes a script called Patterns. Um, may I, may I stop you? He's in Cincinnati now at the time. Oh, sorry. I'm kind of skipping some stuff. That's all right. Yeah, from Cincinnati, he eventually, he eventually, um, his, he gets an agent and his agent convinces him to move to New York City. He decides that he can't move all the way to New York City, so he's going to move to Connecticut. So for a long time, he's in Connecticut and he will commute if he needs to, to get into, in, into New York. He never really lives in New York City properly. Um, eventually, he'll be out on the West Coast, though, for a lot. Uh, eventually, he becomes bi-coastal, actually. Um, so he, um, he writes a show called Patterns. And it becomes, before it even gets produced, it becomes sort of legendary in the industry. Like hmm. everybody who read it loved it, thought it was amazing. Um, they actually made it three different times in the span of a couple of years. Once was live because they were still in the live era. Uh, once was a filmed version, but for television. Once they tried to actually turn it into a movie you'd go see at the theater. Um, I saw, I think, the second version. Um, and it's actually really good, <laughs> I will say. Um, so... I'll give you a little taste of what it's about because it's thematically perfect Rod Serling, except it's not science fiction. So most of the scenes are pattern, and this is just from the Wikipedia page, but most of the scenes um, from patterns are set in the corporate boardroom and surrounding offices of Ramsey and company, a Manhattan industrial empire headed by the ruthless Walter Ramsey. He brings youthful industrial engineer, Fred Staples um, in to do a, a top executive job at the head office. Ramsey is grooming Staples to replace the aging Bill Briggs as second in command. Briggs has been with the firm for decades, having worked for and admired the company's father, Ramsey's father. Fa sorry, the company's founder, Ramsey's father. Uh, his concern for the employees clashes repeatedly with Ramsey's ruthless methods. Blah 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 blah. Basically, the owner of this, the the the, the head of this company, um, pushes Briggs so hard that Briggs has a heart attack in the hallway and dies. The Staples guy. Um, basically says, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to work for you. You're obviously a prick. Like this isn't going to work out. And Ramsey says like, well, you can do that or you can just run away from every conflict you want, or you can, you can stay here and be, you know, have be tested and be challenged and have make accomplishments. And Staples works out this deal with him. He's like, listen, I will work for you, but I am never going to be your yes man. I will push back on you and everything. And I will do everything I can to get you out of this company and take over. And Ramsey, the head of the company says, that's fine with me. Let's do it. And it's this cool kind of ending where they both like, they both butt heads ultimately. And you realize they're going to be locked in this thing. Um, it's snappy. It's smart. It moves really quickly. It's really coolly paced. It looks good. It was... In fact, at this time, and who knows how Sterling did this, he probably talked his way into it. It was possibly the most expensive television production up to that point. Um, he was not particularly well known at this point. He'd been on, he'd had a show called Requiem for a Dream that had been critically acclaimed, but beyond that, nobody really cared yet. Um, but patterns, and, and this was done in the context of the Hallmark thing? Um, or? I think it was on, was it on Hallmark? Yes, I believe it was on Hallmark originally. Yeah. Yeah. It was a one hour drama that came out on TV. I believe it was in the Hallmark Hall of Fame, if I'm not mistaken. Um, or no, sorry. This was Kraft Theater. <laughs> so Kraft um, Mac and Cheese presents yeah. <laughs> right, Rod Serling's right. Patterns. Right, right, yeah. right. And it yeah, turned I out just to be hear this, it like, now. Yeah. In yeah. Intense, like corporate drama. Right. Um, just yeah, selling it, you noodles and right. cheese in the middle of it. <laughs> 
right, right. Yeah, the craft um, family. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, and it was weird. The, the corporation, the corporate involvement was, and we're going to talk about this is my next topic, uh, actually. Um, but the important thing about the pattern story is this made him, uh, basically the phone started ringing as soon as patterns came off the air and it never really stopped for Rod Serling until maybe 10 or 15 years later. Can I interject and say yeah. this? Uh, I looked it up and uh, the the poster for it is 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 amazing. There's mm-hmm. a boardroom and there's a man in the crosshairs and it says yeah. portrait of a man on a battlefield. Right. Ruthless <laughs> men and ambitious women <laughs> clawing for control of a billion dollar empire. Right. Patterns of power, <laughs> right? Yeah, very cool. It, it's, you know, it's it's like a television play, is what they call it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah Nineteen fifty six. And I watched it. I watched. Uh, I like I said. I think I watched the the second one for TV. I think is what it was. Mm. Um, and honestly, it's as good. It's it's pretty good for. It's not quite Citizen Kane, but like it's it's watchable. For is sure. there a quality of Hitchcock to it? There is a little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely a Hitchcock influence. Now, Serling didn't direct it, and he wouldn't have been able to. Um, so who knows what decisions were getting made there. But it, I, think it, I think it stands up as a reasonably good, you know, 50s film. Um, but this sponsorship thing you're talking about is really interesting because after Patterns, he, he basically the money starts stacking up, and he, he's a workaholic. So he will just write all day long until he passes out, basically. And so... TV needs a guy like this. Not only a big name, but somebody who will produce something all of the time, right? So um, he rises, after patterns, he rises to prominence pretty quickly. Um, and he starts butting up against these sponsorships. The sponsors are kind of ridiculous, honestly. And he becomes known as the angry young man of television. And then you got to remember, he thinks that racism and bigotry are the biggest thing, are the worst thing in the world. And something I didn't mention, he thinks that television in particular is something that is supposed to edify and, and provide commentary, right? Because it's broadcast. So it's supposed to like provide like a dialogue on social issues, right? So he wants all of his shows to do something with that and the sponsors aren't really having it the sponsors are like like literally yeah, the sponsors we're just, we're just trying to sell mac and cheese here yeah, yeah uh, exactly well, i don't he know what a, this has to do with uh yeah, middle america kid right. he, he had a show uh, and he had a movie um uh, sorry a television thing where he was um trying to basically retell the emmett till story i'm sure you're from are you familiar with the emmett till story that kid um he was a kid i think in mississippi or alabama a, bl- a young black kid and he he had like um he had flirted with a white girl or maybe people thought he had kissed her or something right. and they like he was like beaten to death by the townsfolk i've heard of that yeah, yeah. um it's a terrible story and uh rod serling tried to make a like a version of fictionalized version of that and so i'm like yeah the script's really good but like um can we make emmett till middle-aged and can he be like vaguely hispanic and actually can it be in new england and like <laughs> Right. And like, by the time you're done, Just you're like gutting everything. Right. Yeah. By the time you're done, we're like you're not even we're not even talking about the same thing anymore. Sure. It's like an isolated incident with no greater. So stuff like this was happening all the time. He tells a story when he was making the Twilight Zone about uh, there was a an episode that was set on the bridge of a British battleship, and um, the 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 seamen called down for tea. And the sponsors, one of the sponsors was the makers of instant coffee, and they said, "Well, we can't have them ordering tea." You gotta, you gotta, you gotta do something about that. You gotta make a change. We can't have our, we can't have our characters <laughs> eat, drinking tea. Are you kidding right, me? Right, right. And he changed it. 
Like, because you can't, they could just pull funding. And you didn't have like 12 commercial people providing commercials. You had one, two, maybe three, if you were lucky, sponsors for the whole season. And if they pulled out, you're done. You don't have a budget right. anymore. It's all craft all the time. Right. Everything is, uh, <laughs> right. you need right. so much mac and cheese. You get a mac and cheese coming out of your ears by the time you're done. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's so, not poison for your children. Right, right, right. <laughs> There's no asbestos in our mac and cheese any longer. Not anymore. Now with 90% less asbestos. Yeah. yeah. Just, right. just smoking cigarettes. There's a lot of Rod Serling. He did a lot right, of cigarette right. commercials later too. He's like, ah, you'll waste. Softest, gentlest, you know, smoke that you can possibly imagine. Right. Nine yeah, out of ten doctors like, recommend, recommend an Oasis, Oasis yeah. cigarettes. Right. Trust right. the science. Right. <laughs> so, so this is, goes on for a while. He makes a bunch of shows, and he's winning Emmys. Like he's after between Patton oh, he's just and, killing it. Oh, it, he's killing it. Is he it, still yeah. living in Connecticut at this point? He eventually, um, he eventually just moves to L.A. Moves to L.A. Um, and he's agent hopping. He's making more and more and more. Is, Every is he single here? No, no, no. I'm sorry. Okay. He's married. Yeah. Um, he married. Um, I kind of skipped over this. Yeah, he yeah. met a woman in, in um, Antioch, Carolyn, um, and they got married. He has he has two children in his twenties somewhere. Um, that that explains the I'm living in Connecticut. I'm not living yeah, in Manhattan. No, I'm kind not of a, live in the yeah, city. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So after he moves to L.A., they start um, sort of splitting time between Connecticut. He's mostly in L.A. The family doesn't really come with him when he's doing that. And then they also have a place in Cayuga Lake, New York. Um, you know, because he's starting. So he's to, crushing it. He's oh, making he's starting bank. To stack dollars. Yeah. And, you know, there's he's getting like there's a while um, he would get several thousand dollars for um, a, a one hour script that he could write. <laughs> this, in a week this, or two. Is, this goes back to again our boomer, uh, yeah. uh, you know, greatest generation problem. It's like, oh, yeah. well, I wrote uh, for a, a feature for Time Magazine, and I yeah. moved to Peru and lived, right. off, lived off those proceeds for three years. <laughs> right. Well, I finished my novel. I sold <laughs> right. that, and then moved to Europe for ten right. years. Right. Right. Where I married the heiress of a right. whatever right. <laughs> of right. a horse uh, fortune, yeah. <laughs> and now right. uh, right. yeah, now I'm living yeah. in Toronto. Like yeah, what? now, if you do what? any right, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. You never actually, you never actually did anything. Like yeah, he yeah. wrote one yeah. feature for Time and one right. novel that was right. well received. Right, right. And the movie rights were bought. You never have to work again. Right. Congratulations. Right. Right. Yeah, that, that that for us for our generation that pays off your student loans. Maybe right, barely. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So. So he's, so he's, yeah, he is starting to stack that cheese and he ends up, he not necessarily, I don't know how good he was at negotiating for himself, but he was really good at talking agents into representing him and convincing them to get him good deals. Right. So he started making a lot of money. Um, before the Twilight Zone aired, and we're going to get to the Twilight Zone in the meat of the Twilight Zone here in a second. Before the Twilight Zone aired, he was the most famous television writer in the country. This is before the Twilight Zone ever came out. So, um, we kind of have to put that into that context because most people now who Rod Sterling rings a bell, all they know about him is the Twilight Zone. They don't even really realize that he wrote these stories. Now, um, here's the thing, though. We got to get into a little bit more of what the darkness is because we're art of darkness. So we talked about the PTSD and, you know, the rapacious smoking. Um, there's a thing about Sterling being a workaholic, um, being a starved for attention, being super confident, and not being a perfectionist. 
So if he'd have been a little bit more of a perfectionist and maybe not so much some of these other things, he may have really become the Arthur Miller of his generation or whatever. Or Arthur Miller number two. I feel like he's probably the same generation almost. Anyway, he, he could have become that, that guy. Sterling was much, seemed to be much more interested in quantity than quality. Um, he was cranking them out because he could get a lot of money for them. He wanted first to take care of his family, but then he wanted to have a nice car and then he wanted to have a nice house and then he wanted to have nice clothes. Um, a little bit of the, the Fitzgerald problem. Yeah. Where you start writing for magazines. Now you're writing for television. Your colleagues maybe don't think you're as serious. Right. And it's sort of artistic death. Yes. And he, he definitely, he definitely, um, he definitely, experienced that um i'm going to give you a a little bit of a reading from something he said a little bit later in his career about this whole fame thing money thing this is serling himself they give you a thousand dollars a week and they keep on giving you a thousand dollars a week and by the way that's like 10 grand now until that's what you need to live on and then every day you live after that you're afraid they'll take it away from you It's all very scientific. It's based on the psychological fact that a man is a grubbing, hungry little sleaze. In 24 hours, you can develop a taste for caviar. In 48 hours, fish eggs are no longer a luxury. They're a necessity. So he's, he understands he got ratcheted down into this thing and he eventually sort of gives up caring about it. But early in his career, pre twilight zone, he's the angry young man of television. He's like, we need to be making social commentary. We need to be dealing with the issues and there's bigotry in this country and, you know, and, and good, fair enough. Right. I'm fine with all of that. Um, but it gets, eventually it gets dashed against the rocks and then kind of swallowed by the grabbling. I got to make more money. Uh, I got to, I got to pay for the house in, uh, in Connecticut. Oh, I got to pay for the lake house and Ooh, I got a place in LA. And did he, did he mess around while he was in LA too? Did he have, uh, because he needed attention, right? He literally, (laughs) there's like mention of attention for him was like a drug. He Mm. needed it desperately um and, and as as he got older he was able to kind of deal with not having it so much but like you'll read these things it was like he'll have a year where he got an emmy if later in that year he gets a rejection for something he's a failure uh right uh-huh. it's like literally okay. you won the award for the best show on tv and then a little bit of later. a napoleon complex going <laughs> right. on here I think. right yeah right yeah. right um, king of the, so, I'm king of the world. Right, right. I'm the great Rod Serling. Right, right. There is yeah. definitely a bit of that. So, mm. um, but it seemed almost more um, not so much ego as self. You know, maybe I don't know if self-loathing. Even I mean, I'm not inside of his head. Um, it didn't. It wasn't that he thought he was better than everybody necessarily. It was just he wanted to be the best. I think he was willing to admit when he wasn't, but hmm. it was still a little hard on him. Hmm. Um, so anyway, writing TV, writing TV, writing TV. He'd sort of had this idea for the Twilight Zone back in like the mid-50s. And what started to really push him over into getting, trying to talk somebody into getting it produced, which he eventually would do, was he realized that he could circumvent all of the censorship if he dealt with all of the issues he wanted to deal with in the context of a science fiction or fantasy show. Um, much like Star Trek did, right? It was like, yeah, you make, you know, he says, he tells a story of, about when he was first working in TV, you were not allowed to say somebody was a Democrat or a Republican. 
like so you couldn't like the amount of how washed out you were from being able to say anything about what was happening was everything had to be well you know literally couples married couples that asleep in separate beds on tv right there was this like <laughs> we're not actually going to confront anything whatsoever right right um which is you know no matter what side of the issues you come down on is not necessarily pretty healthy. neutered Right. And not right. a very good uh, atmosphere for the creation of impactful art. Right, right, right. Yeah. You're going to have to ruffle some feathers and you can't have them, you can't have them saying, well, is there a Coca-Cola can in the background? Because that suggests this is in the South. And then if it's, in, you know, like mm -hmm. literally mm -hmm. that level of detail, right? Right. So, so he eventually, he, he starts kind of talking his way into getting this Twilight Zone show made. Um, one thing I want to note around this time, 57, 50, let's say we're in 57, 58, because we're coming right into the Twilight Zone. He um, starts to experience intense tingling numbness in his right pinky finger. Now, I got to go back a little bit. His, when he was in World War II, his, mother, his father died before, he was able to, before Rod was able to get home. His father died at the age of 50 or 51 um, uh, from a heart attack. And so this is the Serling family curse is, is a weak heart in some way. Um, 57 or 58, Rod Serling is uh, 33. Is that right? Yeah. Um, starts feeling a tingling numbness in his right pinky finger. Doctor tells him to not stop smoking so freaking much. Right. Um, this will come back around though. So anyway, one way he gets into, uh, uh, before Twilight Zone, he writes his first science fiction piece, which is called The Time Element, which played in the Desilu Playhouse, which was basically the Desi Arnaz, Lucille Ball, their version of craft theater. Um, and interestingly, in The Time Element, written by Rod Serling, one of the key plot points is that um, a character travels back in time and makes a fortune by uh, betting on sporting events. Aha, good one. Right. Yeah. I am telling myself 10 years ago, right. buy Bitcoin, dummy, buy Bitcoin, <laughs> dummy, buy and don't, Bitcoin. Don't, and don't sell until 60. Hodl. At least. Hodl Bitcoin. Until at least buy 60. and hodl Bitcoin, Kevin. Hodl. What the hell are you talking Hodl. Just hodl Bitcoin, Kevin. Buy It'll stacks, make sats, Kevin, and hodl. <laughs> Kevin Becker is like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm in grad school. What are you Ray, talking about? What do you about? mean? What do you mean? Just right. buy ten dollars. <laughs> How could ten dollars matter? <laughs> Just trust me. I'm being, oh, I'm being dragged back into the present where right. everything right. sucks. So no. <laughs> yeah. See, that's a good Twilight. That would be like a good modern Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might have to flesh it out a little more. Than well, that. A little bit. No, Rod would. Rod would just. Rod yeah, would, he just would just run with it. He would just smoke nineteen cigarettes <laughs> and he would just finish it. The episode's yeah. called Hodl. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's written like slightly in hieroglyphics like what yeah, right? it's like some weird ancient <laughs> wisdom um okay so i want to give you an idea of how rod sterling pitched um how he pitched twilight zone so one day he meets with william dozer who is a uh, cbs uh the cbs's chief of west coast programming uh to pitch this idea for the twilight zone Dozier had been introduced to Sterling before, and the executive liked the writer immediately, which almost everybody did, finding him amiable and charming. He remembers also being struck by Sterling's two obvious elevator shoes. Rod was very conscious of his shortness, Dozier points out. He would stand at his full height all the time. 
<laughs> um, in his usual style, Sterling paced the room using furniture and drapery for props as he animatedly and enthusiastically tried to sell his series idea. Executives who didn't know Sterling could have been an excuse for forgetting that this was a writer, not an auditioning actor, but that had become his style. He entertained. The stories, Serling said, would be science fiction, but not really science fiction. Fantasy, but not really fantasy. It was going to be imaginative fiction for TV. So, so this is kind of where the, 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 this is Twilight Zone's episodes are all over the place. Some of them are in space. Some of them are like vaguely not even science fiction. They're like one little weird thing happens, right? Um, they're sort of all over the map. Um, let me just run you through a couple, like, I'm going to tell you like my four, not even my favorite, four that are, I think encapsulate what the Twilight Zone's all about. Um, first is Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, which is one of the more famous, one of the first. Um, Monsters uh, Are Due on Maple Street is basically there's some radio report that there's um, an, been an alien invasion and um, that the aliens are posing as human beings. This neighborhood, Maple Street, all of the lights go out. The neighbors come out in the street and they start suspecting each other immediately, right? And they sort of all turn on each other. It turns out that there was not even necessarily wasn't even an alien invasion, right? So not even science fiction, really. Um, <clears throat> sort of psychological and again, getting into the, the psyche of the paranoia of that time. Oh, yeah. The, the, the latter half of the 20th century for America is in no small part but defined by paranoia. Right, right. Somebody right. might be getting a better deal. Absolutely. The Russians might be next door. Absolutely. And that's yeah. what a lot of these space ones were about. And this next one I was going to tell you about, this one was called The Shelter. And how it works is one guy in the neighborhood has built himself a bomb shelter. Everybody thinks he's being ridiculous and he's being paranoid. But he's like, hey, you know, what could it hurt? I've got this bomb shelter. Um, then the bombs start falling he goes into the bomb shelter and then all of his neighbors are at the door, pounding on the door, fighting with each other, clawing to get in, you know, yada, yada. They eventually do break into the bomb shelter only to find out false alarm. The bombs are not falling. Right. Meanwhile, this, this, this community of neighbors has torn itself apart. <clears throat> um, so that's two kind of, these are, these are fun. They have the quality of theater. They, they, have do. The, they do have yeah. the quality, they're sort of a central nugget, a kind of a metaphor, and then you blow out the yeah, character yeah. studies from there. And yeah. Right, right, yeah. right, right. And, and they're, they, like I literally, I watched The Shelter just recently. And again, it's not the greatest thing I've ever seen, but it's tight. The characters are good. Their characters are, they're, they're not just all the same. It's not seven versions of this. They all have different wants and needs and personalities and they're fairly well acted and it's, it's pretty good TV. And we're uh, talking about what? 45 minute runtime. It runs an hour uh, with ads. Hour. Oh, half, a half, half, an, hour. half an hour. It's a half yeah. an hour. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't want to write. Um, he didn't want to write half an hour at first. He thought that was hacky. And then on the third season, they tried to make him an hour and he ended up, he decided he hated it. He'd like learned the form of the, he'd perfected the half hour. It's right? a big difference. Uh, trying is. to write 30 minutes or yeah, one hour. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause you can just make a kernel work in 30 minutes, but after right. a while you gotta like, you gotta have it happen in multiple days probably. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. Right. Know, just it's, it's just enough difference. Um, hmm. There's another episode he wrote called The Little People, which um, would later be used in the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. Actually, a bunch of Simpsons Treehouse of Horror are actually just readapted Twilight Zone. Episodes. Oh, yeah. Th this stuff is uh, seeped into the oh, for collective sure. conscience, uh, conscious uh, just completely. Yeah, yeah. 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 The Little People is these two um, 
space traveler guys crash land on this planet. They got to fix this ship, but it's going to take a long time. The one guy is like a real, like a tough guy, but like a noble person. And the other guy is like a simpering egomaniac. And this simpering egomaniac somewhere on the planet has found a microscopic civilization. Like you have to like, you can see like maybe a building with your naked eye, but that's it. And, he, and there's five foot four Rod Serling and he's the king of them all. Is that what's happening? <laughs> it could have been. It could have been. But, <laughs> so this simpering sort of egomaniac guy, he becomes their god and he will like stamp them out and he demands that they build him an enormous statue and like he, you know, he becomes like, and the other guy who doesn't want any part of this, he's like, these are like sort of like human beings like you should just leave them alone he eventually abandons this guy to the planet and he the guy wants to be there and then um they do something the little people do something that um that displeases this godlike this guy who's given himself godlike power so he wipes them out and then even gianter aliens show up on the planet and of course kill him so it's a perfect twilight zone karma yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you got to take care of the little people. That's right. That's right. There's another great. Well, I'll give you one more, and then I'm not going to hit you with these. I just think the premises are. I think the premises are pretty. Good. I think this is a great structure for the show. You're just yeah. peppering in these Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah. And yeah, I feel like I understand his psychology a little more. Sure. So yeah, yeah. There's, there's another one he wrote called "It's a Good Life," and "It's a Good Life" is about a little town. He introduces it so well. Um, I'm going to actually just read how he introduces it. Tonight's story on the Twilight Zone is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. This, as you may recognize, is a map of the United States, and there's a little town there called Peaksville. On a given morning not too long ago, the rest of the world disappeared and Peaksville was left all alone. Its inhabitants were never sure whether the world was destroyed and only Peaksville left untouched, or whether the village had somehow been taken away. They were, on the other hand, sure of one thing, the cause. A monster had arrived in the village. Just by using his mind, he took away the automobiles, the electricity, the machines, because they displeased him, and he moved an entire community back into the Dark Ages, just by using his mind. Now I'd like you to introduce you to some of the people in Peaksville, Ohio. This is Mrs. Fremont. Or sorry, this is Mr. Fremont. It's in his farmhouse that the monster resides. This is Mrs. Fremont, and this is Aunt Amy, who probably had more control over the monster in the beginning than almost anyone. But one day she forgot. She began to sing aloud. Now the monster doesn't like singing, so his mind snapped at her, turned her into the smiling, vacant thing you're looking at now. She sings no more. And you'll note that the people in Peaksville, Ohio, have to smile. They have to think happy thoughts and say happy things because, once displeased, the monster can wish them into a cornfield or change them into a grotesque walking horror. This particular monster can read minds, you see. He knows every thought. He can feel every emotion. Oh yeah, did I forget something, didn't I? I did forget something, didn't I? I forgot to introduce you to the monster. This is the monster. His name is Anthony Fremont. He's six years old, with a cute little boy face and blue, guileless eyes. But when those eyes look at you, you'd better start thinking happy thoughts, because the mind behind them is absolutely in charge. This is the Twilight Zone. <laughs> and they just they just zoom in on the six-year-old yes. and it's ted kaczynski <laughs> i don't like, like cars i don't like <laughs> that that's fantastic i gotta tell you something else about this that i've been yeah. thinking about a lot lately uh i went through when i watched uh the two seasons of the the hbo show rome 
Okay. Which uh, yeah. I've always uh, meant to watch that, but never like got around to it for a while. Very good, yeah. very very good show, especially the first season. Um, yeah. John Milius was one of the creators of oh, the I didn't show, know that. Okay. and it's it's trashy, uh, yeah. but the formula, but it's high trash. Yeah, it's high middle brow <laughs> trash. Um, uh, and, I aspire you know, to write that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and fun. And right. but the formula that HBO would then go on to use with all of its other shows was really codified in a big way by that show. It was hmm. uh, raucous sex and then right. some violence and then some political intrigue and then some right. domestic intrigue. Right. And it's it's a formula, but it really works. Yeah. And you've got, um, is it Kieran Hines? Is that the name yeah. of the fellow who plays Caesar? And okay. just, it's just so well acted and it's sort of about class and you have this yeah. high and this low. Anyway, I was- And, I was, and, mm-hmm. and you have cinema budget. Yeah, more or less. famously, yeah. like they, they went yeah. so far over budget that the, the show got killed for it. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. um, the reason I, the reason I bring it up is that they have a, uh, a conceit in there or a structural thing they do where they have the, uh, the, uh, the town crier who mm. says, and now Caesar triumphant right. returns from Gaul, da, da, da. and, and right. it, it, it's exposition. And one of the things right. that young writers get told is, ah, avoid exposition. Blah, blah, blah. Right. What they really mean when they say avoid exposition is avoid sticking, sticking it into your character's mouths. Right. 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 Yep. You, you, sometimes exposition is incredible. So like in right. Rome, again, the crier, they just cut right to the chase. Okay. Yeah. We're not going to shoot this huge battle. We're just going to tell you that Caesar won this battle. We're going to show you a little bit of the aftermath. The mind right. fills in the gaps. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is the same thing with the Twilight Zone. Just just cut right to the chase, mm-hmm. and in forty five seconds of of a monologue, completely spin the rules of this world, and then right. drop me into it. Right, right, yeah. right. And you needed, and this is what we worked about having Rod Serling be the guy who did it. Ever he had this, he had a great voice. Mm-hmm. And for anybody who hasn't heard him, I almost wanted to play like ten seconds of it because I think his voice is perfect i will put i will put an intro uh to one of the episodes uh, at the end of this episode okay yeah and you can do any of them he's he's got this great voice and apparently he nailed everything on one take pretty much but um so he has this it has this like almost god like you know people say well i think morgan freeman is the voice of god sure right right it's he had that to me don lafontaine kind of in a world yeah yeah, yeah, he owns it right. completely. And, yeah. you know, and he's standing there in his suit and he looks very serious and he's smoking a cigarette. And he's, he's a also, veteran. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And he's yeah. also in the scene, but not the other characters don't see him, you know. So he'll be like in the living room explaining oh. to you what's happening, but nobody in the living room sees him. You know what it reminds me of is the, the narrator in uh, Our Town. Okay, I don't know. It has a bit of an art. Well, Our Town mm-hmm. is the, the, the most widely performed American play of mm-hmm. all time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's a narrator who narrates the, it's, it's, it's the stage manager. Yeah. It yeah. actually narrates kind of what's happening and sure. it's a whole thing. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think he's probably borrowing. I mean, I'm not, Rod didn't invent this, obviously. Sure. But it sure. works really yeah. well. Yeah. Right. Um, I want to give you one thing too, one more thing. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the phenomenon. And I know, you know, this could go, I, I got deep into this. So I'm trying to skip over things. And sometimes it's, it's difficult to know what to skip because it all seems so cool. Um, so here's a quote from, uh, this is from uh, the Joel Engel book again about the inspiration for Twilight Zone. The question, so um, quoting Joel Engel, so what attracted Rod Serling, the writer, to the world of the fantastic? Because he'd been writing all these realistic dramas. Bob Serlings, his brother, um, said that Rod told him the Twilight Zone sprang from his frequent insomniac nights when his active imagination, 
Fed by his lifelong love of horror films, his war experience, and the stories of such writers as Robert Heinlein, Ray Bradbury, and H.P. Lovecraft, actually, contrived fantastical plots that somehow seem plausible in the pre-dawn. Carol Serling, his wife, says that her husband wanted to believe in the unseen, but he had no direct experiences himself. So that's just, you know, a little bit of color for this guy who basically reinvented science fiction like overnight almost. Um, so the show was almost an instant hit. Um, it was rarely at the very tippy top of the ratings. It was a little bit too unconventional. Um, but it was probably maybe the most enthusiastic viewing, right? So it'd be, you know, it's not, again, not, not selling the most advertising, but this is what people talk about, talked about around the water cooler or the soda fountain or whatever it was in 1959. Um, very importantly, and I, I think the more I think about this, the more important it becomes. It was unwittingly, maybe, the first show targeted at baby boomers that was not children's entertainment. Right. So they're just 1959. Right. A baby boomers like 14 ish, maybe a little younger. So by the time you get to 1965, we're living in over. a weird nuclear age, man. That's <laughs> right, right. Nothing's what it seems. Right. Right. So there's yeah. kids in college dorms smoking weed and they're like, well, I just Twilight saw Zone. Twilight Zone. You know, my <laughs> mind is blown. <laughs> right. And. And because Serling is writing it, they always, they frequently have this strong moral compass to the show. There's a, somebody did the right thing and a good, and, and, and it, maybe it worked out or it didn't, but somebody did the wrong thing and they got their comeuppance, right? A bunch of bandits steal a, a, a thousand pounds of gold and then they freeze them, they cryogenically freeze themselves in a cave and when they wake up, gold has no value. Right, like those. That's what's happening of- right now. Bitcoin, <laughs> hodl Bitcoin. Gold is worthless. Bitcoin is going to right. going to ten trillion. It's replacing gold. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. <laughs> Find us on Patreon. It's Patreon.com/slash Art of Dark Pod. And give us some portion of a Bitcoin. Right. Why yeah. not? Chuck us some fiat. Yeah. It's worthless yeah. anyway. That's right. <laughs> it doesn't. It's not worth anything to you. It's End not is worth near. Anything to us. Who cares? It's just the. It's the gesture. Support the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now Twilight Zone gets picked up. It's popular. Of course, he wants to be at the top of the, the top of things. He loves us. Oh, one more thing I wanted to just say yeah, about yeah. this. I, I we're talking about the cultural influences of the 1960s. I think this morality, how strongly. Um, Rod Serling was an outspoken he was about civil rights and against, you know, bigotry and that sort of thing. I'm not saying he was Martin Luther King, but I'm saying he contributed to that discourse in some small way because you were 14 years old in 1959. You loved the Twilight Zone. Rod Serling kind of became the voice in your head to some small degree. And then eight years later, the war in Vietnam breaks out and there's riots in Detroit, right? You kind of, they kind of, you it's informing the perspective of people for sure. And it's, you know, you've got Vietnam and you've got Woodstock and you've got the Beatles. And I think Rod Serling is a little bit more in there than we typically think. Um, certainly more people, were, as many people were watching the Twilight Zone as listening to the Beatles, to be honest. So, um, so anyway, I just thought that's interesting. Um, uh, now, he's working... This is the thing about Twilight Zone. So he wrote um, 
an incredible amount for this show. Most of the episodes were him, right? We said bulk of the series, dude. He's writing 20, he's writing the first season, I think it was like 34 or something, but then he's writing 20 episodes a season, right? So in a year- And he's doing this on his own without co-writers, without- He pretty much writes these on, on his own. He will often have other people write whole episodes and they're credited to them and he didn't really rewrite them. He would sometimes adapt a short story and, um, you know, it would still be teleplay by Rod Serling, but frequently these were entirely his own creation. And yeah, they wouldn't, you didn't like, they weren't like co-written really. Hmm. He didn't have like a team of writers. It's, it's uh, prodigious. Yes. Yeah. In one 12 month period, he would write 20 Twilight Zone scripts, a book of short stories, rewrite a Broadway play. He had this um, play called Requiem for a Heavyweight that was very popular on TV. He kept trying to get it made as a play. It did eventually happen, but it wasn't successful. Um, and he pr- and was also a producer for Twilight Zone at the same time. So first season, yeah, I've got it here. He wrote 28 episodes of the first season, 20 of season two, 20 of season three. So now- in three years, he writes almost he writes 70 episodes of television was there was there cocaine was there what's the story here because i mean this is uh, no this cocaine is wild no cocaine yeah. we just away from the wife and the kids in yeah, la yeah so maybe just, just workaholic just, grinding he was i think he was he was this is the thing he was desperate to i, I mean he was a cre- he was a creative person and again like even if i, I struggled with this thing about uh, about him because i think he I think he fell short of what he maybe could have done quality wise in some ways. Um, But the, it's clearly, this is prodigious creativity. Like very few people could come up with 80 ideas in three years, let alone actually flesh them out to any degree. Right. It's just a crazy, it's a crazy product. Yeah. And having the formula there is great, but that right. is, that is still, uh, yeah, yeah prolific and oh, intense. Yeah. And right. Right. Clearly and the incentives them, are there. Yeah. Yeah. And having them be successful. Right. And it's like the next year, it's like companies want to give you money to keep doing it. Like it's not, it's, it's a significant achievement. I think it's cool too. Cause <laughs> it, it does have the flavor of counterculture somewhat. It's, oh, yeah. it's mainstream, but it's got an edge. It's quirky. Yeah. It's sci-fi. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, psychological. It's, right? it's got kind of all of that in there. It's yeah. Very cool thing. There's aliens. There's, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I'm sure the cool kids were into it. Yeah. When did you it know? air? Was it kind of an after hours after the, uh, after, uh, the talk Friday, shows and Friday at 10 PM, 10 PM. Right. Yeah. So kind of, you, yeah, kind yeah, of. You're, you got to stay up and watch the twilight right. zone. Right. If you, right. if you're good, if you get your homework done, Johnny, yeah, that's right. you get that's to right. stay up and watch he, the he twilight apparently zone. He got letters from parents cause you couldn't tape anything at the time. He apparently got letters from parents asking if they could uh, broadcast it an hour earlier. So their kids didn't have to stay up so late. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great cool. well there's a lot of people wrote in you know that was times. sure sure something they liked or didn't like you would write a letter oh you know? <laughs> I, I remember I'm a, i was a big mystery science theater 3000 fan and they'd always flash their p.o box you know hopkins oh, yeah. minnesota st paul right. minnesota people right, would right. write in yeah i love right. that stuff that right. old yeah tv good yeah, stuff for sure so now and again we've talked about the fact that he he tried to write films too. So Rod Serling did try to write movies. Very few of them were successful. He was much better at writing TV. He kind of refused to learn the TV format. He did try to write plays. As I mentioned, that Requiem for Heavyweight, and that's why I want to kind of hit this note. Um, they also basically didn't go anywhere. He tried to write short stories, and they were almost always terrible because he dictated them. 
Um, he never really typed them. He, he, he moved way too fast. Uh, it seemed to me he moved way too fast to do anything but, to, but television. And, and this kind of weekly thing was perfect for him. He could crank out a new idea. He didn't, and it being an anthology, he didn't have to think about like, okay, what happened in the last episode and what does, happens to this person now? He could write these little capsules, which is harder in a lot of ways, but it kind of depends on how your brain works, right? Um, this is a quote from a producer. Um, oh, oh, actually from uh, Aaron Spelling, who's sort of famous in television later, right? Um, and who sort of worked with Serling. Their careers overlap a little bit. Um, if Serling had known, uh, sorry, uh, Aaron Spelling once asked Serling, how can you write so many Twilight Zone scripts? Easy, Serling replied. I don't have to write the third act. The third act is... That's just the way it is in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> so there's just this like, yeah, I mean, if it's weird enough, it doesn't really have to make sense at the end. You're right? living in my zone, baby. Right, right. This, is the, this is the Rod Serling Twilight Zone. <laughs> That's right. It's not going to. It doesn't have to make sense. We're making television. Right. We're right. selling soap here. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So um, I'm going to kind of just kind of jump around in some quotes here and then we're going to Twilight Zone's almost over. Um, uh, no, so I want to talk about actually, so Twilight Zone ends. Um, we get uh, Rod Sterling is as famous as ever. Um, he's now a, you can, you see him and you know him, right? He is the most He's literally the most famous writer, person who you can call a writer in the world. Everybody knows who he is. Um, everybody knows his voice. Everybody knows his face. He's on the TV constantly. Um, after Twilight Zone ends, he's sort of he's a little bit struggling to figure out what the next project is. Um, you know, the show was popular, but every season sponsors were threatening to leave, and he had to like cajole them or somebody else to pay keep paying for it. And I think he just got exhausted. Um, he does this weird thing because he apparently likes to be in front of the camera so much that after the Twilight Zone, it actually like kind of breaks my heart a little bit. After the Twilight Zone ended, he kept writing, and we'll talk about a little bit about some of his later writing projects. He just started appearing in every commercial he could get his hands on. Just soap, and um, I'm going to actually read, I want to re read this one little bit. Page three hundred one. It's like uh, Orson Welles, yes, doing yeah. the uh, commercials. Right, but very he's, he's obese. A, he's, already, he's already rich. He yeah. sold the Twilight Zone for like three million dollars, the rights okay. to it, or something crazy wow. like that. Right, so okay. he's already rich. Um, hmm. uh, so three, yeah. So this is again from the Joel Engel biography. In the two years, 1968 and 1969, so this is like three years after, every, everything that happens in Sterling's life, it seems like it took place over a decade, but it's like two years. It's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Very busy beaver. <laughs> he really was. Yeah. I, oh, years, by the way, I, I, if I may, I have a, a show title. This is going to be called Rod Serling's Spunk. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, good? Okay, like good. That. Yeah. Good. In the two years, 1968 and 1969, Sterling uh, touted an almost unending stream of products, including Crest Toothpaste, Laura Scudder Potato Chips, Auto Loans at Merchant, Merchants Bank in Indianapolis, BF Goodrich Radial Tires. One of his first commercials in 1966 was for Goodyear. Was for Goodyear. Packard Bell Color Televisions, Westinghouse Appliances, Anison, Samsonite Luggage, Volkswagens, Gulf Oil, Close-Up Toothpaste, 
Serling actually introduced this product to the market. He also got paid for um, his public service announcements for the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, C-A-R-E, which apparently was for Biafran refugees, Epilepsy Foundation of America, United Crusade, the Des Moines Police Association, the Save the Children Foundation. He recorded messages for the Los, uh, the Los Angeles Urban Coalition free of charge. He did at least one free of charge. Wow. So he's just, he's in LA and he has a, probably has an agent, a manager, yep. and he says, yep. I'll do anything. I'll anything. do any ad, throw me yep. in there. I'm a personality. Yeah. Was this a case of wanting to be in everybody's home still after yes. the Twilight Zone yeah. ends? It he was, wants to stay relevant. Yeah, he would say it was for money, but I kind of don't think it was for money as much as it was for staying in the public eye, staying in people's attention and all that. Three million dollars. I mean, you got to figure after taxes, what did he make? He must have made, what is that? It's going to be worth 40 or 50 million dollars now, something now. like that, oh, right? Well, I'm sorry. I was saying that in current. Oh, in current. Okay. Well, still, now, I still mean, a chunk of money, but he'd yeah. been, the thing is he'd been just stacking paper. Like, right. you know, he, he'd been making, you know, thousands of dollars a week in the, those days, dollars for years. At that so point. in the Twilight Zone, I'm going back and I'm screaming at Rod Serling, yeah. buy Dogecoin, buy, buy Dogecoin <laughs> early. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what the, what the hell why? are you talking about? So why would I buy it? Yeah. What, yeah, what this, is a, this what is a crazy Doge? six yeah. foot one guy from the Midwest is screaming <laughs> at him in Hollywood. Yeah, let me, let me, I'm going to finish this quote because there's a, it's got a good end point to it. So this is still about the advertising. Despite all the offers that rolled in for his services, which he authorized the agency to accept contingent, contingent only on price, Serling wanted more. He told his friend Al Weissman at the advertising agency Foot Cone, and Belding that he wanted to be considered for every commercial possible. I have passed your name on to a number of people in the organization, Weissman responded with some disinclination. If that's what you want, so be it. Evidently, his taste, standard, taste standards excluded only, and this is Serling, evidently only Serling's taste standards excluded only housewife, housewife products like floor wax and hair coloring. That is, if he had to be seen on camera, voiceovers were fine for these products. <laughs> just, Look, get that money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Get pay. <laughs> I'm not against it, but... You know, it was like he wanted to be he wanted to be Arthur Miller. He wanted to be Ernest. Oh, Hemingway. he wanted to be Arthur Miller and then he ended up being a guy who sold toothpaste. Right. Understand. Right. There's yeah. something that crunches yeah. about that, right? Where yeah. it's like and he kinda was. Like if he would have slowed down for five minutes and rewritten a second draft of something, he maybe he could have been Arthur Miller. He he could have produced his own theater, he could right. have produced his own f movies. Right. Uh, he could right. have written a screenplay. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah again, it's that Fitzgerald problem where you're like, yes, uh, Gatsby is, 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 is better than anything that Hemingway wrote, but the body yeah. of Hemingway's work is greater than the body of Fitzgerald's right. work, right. in my opinion. Right. I, and that's I because Fitzgerald that. got pulled away. He went, yeah. to, went yeah. to write magazine stories and went to, right. you know, I think even write television and all the rest. Um, right, right. So. Right. Yeah. And so, so Serling's, you know, this is 19, 1965, Twilight Zone ends. This, 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 the height of the commercial period was 1968 to 1969, while people still, still know him. Um, he literally, he hosts a game show for a little while um, called The Liars Club, where celebrities would come on and four, three of them would tell uh, fake stories and one of them would tell a real story. And Rod Serling had to like determine which one was real. <laughs> Which actually sounds like it might be kind of entertaining because 
Rod Serling was a really funny, affable, charismatic guy, right? Like he was fun to listen, talk to. He had a great voice. He had great stories. He was self-deprecating. You know, he would have been, it was probably a pretty funny show. Um, but it's not, again, he's not writing Death of a Salesman when you're going on a game, sh- hosting a game show. Um, he did, at this time though, Twilight Zone over, he kind of figured, the, assumed the, be- the best was behind him. He did start to drink more. He probably started carousing some more. He started tanning more intensively. He started, he continued smoking just as much as he oh, had been. This is a man, he's trying to smoke and pickle himself. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had a ridiculous haircut in the early 70s, which I guess maybe everybody did. Um, but it's like this coiffed mullet kind of thing. It's very, it's, it's obviously too much. Um, he, um, he does have some success after this. I mean, he still wins an Emmy after The Twilight Zone, possibly two Emmys. Um, and, and is still like, he's still a guy who can get work though. He has less, um, you know, he's not the angry young man of television anymore. And the, the medium is evolving to some extent. Um, the, the kind of the last thing, not quite the last thing, but the last, um, thing we're going to talk about him working on was a show called the night gallery, which was sort of like the twilight zone in that it was an anthology series focused more on horror um, you would have several stories in one episode, but Rod Serling basically had no control. He would write scripts. They would get either rejected or so heavily modified that it's sort of, he didn't even recognize them anymore. He was sort of just there as the front man fundamentally. Um, and he, even, he, what's crazy is he comes on the Dick, I think it's Dick Cavett show. Watch this episode um, of the Dick Cavett show while night gallery is out. Right. So he's supposed to be on a self-promotion tour. Yeah, and Rod Serling just says, "I I barely have anything to do with it. I don't even know why my name is on oh, it." Oh, so he's doing a press I, junket, and he he sticks yeah. his foot in his mouth. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's just like, I don't really. I, it's it could it, maybe it'll be a good show. I don't know, but if it is, I won't have an, like it won't be my to my credit. I don't really. Ooh. I don't know. I don't mm. know what's going on with it. So, um. So now he's in his, he's, um, this is in his 40s. This is, a, this description I'm going to give you is a little bit before this night gallery time, but it's close enough, I think, to count. Um, I think one thing that might help people contextualize this too is that he was a big enough celebrity that he, I mean, he was on, he, he was on The Tonight Show. Yes. Uh, yeah. It looks like he was on the 19th episode of the Johnny Carson era yes. of yeah. The Tonight Show. Yeah. So yeah, he was a big, big sure. he was A-list on- Mm-hmm. big time personality and for yeah. a writer he was primarily a writer there were no there was nobody writing television except for maybe a couple comedians who were anywhere near the level of fame that this guy had People, gotcha yeah right. um now so this is this is a little bit a little bit earlier than this six, this night gallery night gallery is very early 70s but this is from the biography again sadly for this man of 41 who felt at least 51 time seemed to be in short supply If he lingered over a single manuscript for a year or two and the manuscript still lacked distinction, he had no excuses for his failure. If, however, he wrote it quickly, rewriting as little as possible, he then had a ready-made excuse. Only writers who believe in their work, even if others don't uh, don't grant themselves the time. I'm sorry. Only writers who believe in their work, even if others don't, grant themselves the time. This was self-sabotage, a part of his personality that seems all the more pathetic because financially he could have afforded to take as much time as he wished. It was a shocking waste of a talent that should have been cultivated, not prostituted. He virtually guaranteed that he would end up writing for television, a medium he professed to avere. So he sold 
out. He did. Mm. Yeah, this is this is. I was looking and looking and looking for the darkness, and PTSD seemed like it, and the cigarette seemed like it, and the workaholism seemed like it, and then I kind of came into this and was like, "Dang, that might be the darkest one of all." Spending a lot of time away from your family too. There's a quality yeah. there that's maybe not yeah. ideal. Did they ever move out to LA with him, or um, was it? They did not. But you know, just within the last ten years, his daughter wrote a biography called something like "The Man I Knew," and she loved him, and she basically posed sure. him as like the ideal father. So I okay. think, I well, think I they did to. actually move out to LA, but okay. I, I, think, I think there was this workaholism, but his personality, and he was a genuinely loving guy. Um, yeah, well then I think then the, the darkness, then I think you're right to hone in on, uh, home in on the, um, yeah. that sellout quality right. of, uh, you have all the money in the world, you have all the fame in the world, but then you yeah. can't take six months and write your masterpiece. You right. can't right. take a year and, produce uh death of a salesman right and maybe you never had it in you or yeah. maybe right maybe you burn through the the energy maybe because right. a lot of that stuff is a young man's game it's a young person's oh, yes. game a oh, lot yeah. of that stuff oh and by, uh, by especially 19- in show business yes and by 1970 he is out of ideas like it's, <laughs> the well is dry right Right. There are two things he made in the 70s. He almost got sued for plagiarism because they were what they were were like a friend of his who told these great stories and everybody oh. in Hollywood knew this guy. And like Serling kind of like, it, it looks very much like Serling might have kind of stole, just took parts of them. They weren't exactly what the guy, but, but well, you know, pretty Yeah, obviously. you need to be like story idea by Brad Kelly, yeah. uh, Emmy Award winning script by Kevin Couch. There you go, right, right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So by the end, it was like there weren't, there wasn't a whole lot left in the tank. Now, right, um, that is dark. If you're, yes. if you aspire to be an artist like Arthur Miller, and then you end up becoming uh, a carnival barker for for toothpaste and and possibly a long way down other people's ideas, right? And then becoming yeah. like a joke thief in comedy. Yeah, uh, yeah, that that's uh, that's pretty ugly. Yeah. Tough to sleep at night. Right, right. No, agreed. And, you know, I, I think, you know, he had gotten some vague accusations of plagiarism. One was um, early on the Twilight Zone period. One of them was by Ray Bradbury. And I looked at like the premises for the two things that were compared. And I don't think they're honestly, I don't really see it, the plagiarism <laughs> in that case. Yeah. I mean, it was like one story was like, they both just involved a person walking through a town where there wasn't anybody. But like, the plots were totally different. Ray Bradbury's was on a different planet. And I had a like dream a, like that once when I was a kid. I mean, it's I an archetypal yeah. kind of thing. It's right. like saying two war movies are plagiarized. Sounds like Ray Bradbury like, was a uh, gold digging. <laughs> Maybe had a lawyer. That Serling fellow is yeah. a hack. Yeah, that's right. That's well, this is an interesting thing because Ray Bradbury was by far a better uh, narrative writer in sure. terms of writing books. And they, there was a relationship there with Rod Serling. But Rod Serling had a TV show kind of like The Twilight Zone that was garbage. Wait, wait, wait. And, you, mean, you mean Ray Bradbury? I'm sorry, yes. Show. Ray, right, Ray right, Bradbury right. did. I'm, I apologize. Yeah, yeah. And it was garbage. It was like the Ray, Ray Bradbury Spectacular or something like that. It was not good whatsoever. Mm. So, you know, Serling's show killed it. And Ray Bradbury's didn't. So uh, Ray Bradbury's show doesn't have a pinball machine. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. Most people don't even know it existed. So, you know, so th- this is, and, and, and I, I like kind of how you put that where, you know, like you were going to write, you were going to write Death of a Salesman, you ended up selling soap. And, and maybe what makes this even sadder is that Serling probably did have the potential. 
You know what I mean? He had like a the lot. great American novel in him. He could right. have written the great Pulitzer winning play. Right. Like yeah. he almost did. He won Emmys and he made sure. a show that would change culture and change tell. Like, but he didn't quite get over that hump. Um, well, there's, there's that great arc in uh, The Sopranos where the TV writer gets caught up with the mob and he tries to mm-hmm. pawn his Emmy. Yeah. And, the, and the pawn guy's like, ah, I can see if it was an Oscar, maybe. <laughs> it's just kind of self-referential <laughs> TV is trash. What are you talking about? Sure, Very funny. Sure. Very funny. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I had <An> mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I had mentioned he had. <clears throat> he had uh, this thing with his finger, numbness in his finger. Mm. It, got only, it only got worse. And apparently this is something called Berger's disease, um, B-U-E-R-G-E-R, where if you smoke a lot, you will start to lose some circulation to your fingers. Um, they told him he had to quit oh, wow. smoking or he was, they would, might have to amputate, which apparently they never ended up getting, getting around to that. Um, but he had a heart attack in 1975. He was only 50 years old um and he um he had a heart attack and he'd survived it he was kind of okay and the doctor had sort of given him this regimen he was supposed to have less stress he was still pretty stressed because he was trying to write a lot but there was just not a lot happening you know he, he had taken these weird this is one thing we missed in this attention thing he was teaching co- courses at ithaca college through a lot of this also um, he, um, he took a sabbatical to Ithaca college, right? And, um, in, during this, he traveled to Columbus, Ohio or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but during this, while he was famous Rod Serling, he got so bored and needed so much attention that he went and like, was the MC for like movie night for a local channel. Like it would be like going to like the St. Paul, whatever, you know, ABC is in St. Paul going on. It's hard to describe exactly like, yeah, it would be had its own broadcast. Sure. Yeah. It would be like uh, local access. You go on a local access sort show of. or something, or, you, yeah. or you're a famous comedian and you go do some open mic uh, right, right. In, in the suburb at the mall. Yeah. 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 So yeah. He would, he, flew, he, he would travel to the city. I think it was, I think it was Columbus. And he would film these little things just so he could still be on TV. Like he just needed it. Uh, um, and and um, so anyway, this time. And he also did a lot of college tours. He would go speak on college campuses a lot. Um, probably to meet, I don't know if he did that to meet girls or not. <laughs> you know, do we know, was there, was there any hanky-panky on the side? I mean, for a guy who was traveling and living away yeah, from his family? Nobody would really, nobody in the biography would really put a very fine point on it, but it kind of becomes clear that there was. Sure. Especially as he got like older and sadder, oh. like, and more Just trying like, to fill that gap, yeah. trying to fill up that hole of... of yeah, I mean, I think yeah, during yeah. the Twilight Zone, there's probably too, probably working too hard to even do, you know what I mean? Just time-wise. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, well, so now yeah. we're in the seventies. He's had a heart attack. A he's heart traveling attack. around. He's made, yeah. he's made all the money. Yeah. yeah. He's got a lot of money. Now, shortly after the heart attack, a couple months later, they decide that he needs a, um, so the doctor prescribes less stress, which he tries to do a little bit more exercise, which he tries to do and cut the cigarettes out, which is not uh, in his wheelhouse whatsoever. He's hiding cigarettes and trees and, you know, he's like, he never really stopped smoking. They, um, and he's like a four, again, he's a four pack a day kind of guy, which is for anybody who hasn't smoked four packs a day. To, if I were to translate it into coffee, it's like drinking 
four pots of coffee. Yeah, four right? uh, French press espresso pots of coffee with yeah. a, a jet fuel espresso inside yeah. them. No yeah. cream, right? Four big pots of, of iced coffee, whole yeah. pots of yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it's like that Bill Hicks joke, you know, how much do you smoke a day? Uh, yeah. A pack a day? Oh, you're you're weak. I smoke. Yeah. I go through three lighters a day, right. man. Right, right. It's like right. four packs is four packs is. You're getting to the point where you, you figure what do they have? Like twenty? They got twenty cigarettes a piece. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. Eighty yeah. cigarettes a day. You're smoking them pretty much first constantly. in the morning. I'm trying to do some math. I mean, how many is that an hour? I mean, you know, there are what twelve hours a day, uh, really. I mean, you're awake for what sixteen hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. You do the math. I mean, you're yeah. You're pretty much constantly smoking. Right. If you're right. not smoking, right. you're actually doing something else with your hands right. or you're eating. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, you're in the shower. Or right. Something. You're a, you're a, you're a cigarette with a human <laughs> yeah. attached to it. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so that's probably too many. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, so they bring him in. They, um, he, he continues having chest pains and thing, and they decide to take him up to Rochester. <laughs> Can't figure out why I'm having these chest pains, doctor. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile. Yeah. Whew. So, um, oh, and he's, he's moved basically back to Cayuga Lake at this point, and, and they decide to take him up to um, Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester. And I only mentioned that hospital because I actually spent a lot of time in that hospital, weirdly enough. And uh, not personally, but I've just been there. And they give him a, bi a bypass surgery, which in 1975 was like the new stuff. They weren't, not a lot of bypasses had been done yet. This was, this was at the forefront of medical technology. At I the think time. a lot of that tech was, was uh, developed at the University of Minnesota. Go Gophers. Oh, that probably A lot of heart, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of medical okay. stuff happened in Minnesota. Oh, good. For what it's worth. There you go. Cool. And it's a great procedure. I mean, it saved tons of people's lives. And at first, they believed it was going to be successful for Rod Serling. It seemed like it had all gone well. But when he woke up on the table, he had another heart attack. They decided to try and give him another bypass immediately. And part of the bypass surgery is they have to cut, um, they have to get an artery, part of an artery out of your leg. When they tried to pull that out, the artery basically fell apart because Ooh. his veins, he basically had the veins, the doctor had said he had the veins of an 80-year-old man. Um, and so that was it. I was it. He died at, he died at, uh, he wasn't quite 51. He would have, he was like six months from being wow, 51. Wow, he died rather, rather young, didn't he? Yeah. He, so he, he kind of smoked, he worked himself to death. He smoked himself to death. He had another heart attack after having the bypass surgery. On the table. Yeah. On when the he, table. When he woke up. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeesh. So, and so. how long did he last after that? Oh, that, that was it. Oh, that that yeah, that he died in that in that he went in for bypass surgery and he never came. He never came. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's a, it's a. I mean, fifty. It's funny, man. Fifty used to seem old to me, but but you know, you and I are basically the same age. Fifties doesn't it starts to seem like it's not that old anymore. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, dude. It's I don't right want to die in twelve years. I mean, yeah, it's twelve years. Twelve years ago, I could legally drink. Yeah. Like, you right. know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was a grown man 12 years right. ago. Well, so sort of. Years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> Physi physiologically. <laughs> right. I mean, in the eyes of the I, law, you were, right. a, you were a fully developed <laughs> adult human being, but we know better. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, 50 is young. He looked like crap, though, I got to oh, say. Man. Well, the, the tanning... The, the book, the biography makes a big deal out of the tanning for whatever reason. I got to think the four packs probably made it look worse than the tanning. Tanned honestly. a lot and, and yeah. smoked a lot. And it sounds like he drank a fair bit. He drank a bit. His diet yeah. probably was not great. 
you know right. yeah like, a lot it, of travel a lot, a lot of, of work travel. And yeah. if he was literally insomniac, probably not much sleep. Thinking stress. about different ways to mess with people yeah. you know, with the Twilight Zone. Like <laughs> right. that's that's your job is to kind of mess with middle America as much right. as possible. There's a certain right. knowing yeah. that you're maybe not fulfilling your your total artistic right. uh, promise. Right. Right. Although, of course, I mean, I don't want to talk smack. I mean, the Twilight Zone is this iconic, incredible oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. accomplishment. But one well, wonders if he really felt that. That's the thing is I don't think that he did. I mean, I think he looked back and thought that he hadn't quite done it you know he had tried to make these broadway plays because he thought that that was more had more artistic merit and they never really worked <laughs> oh know, they, but he was so wrong right <laughs> really though i you know you wonder what he would well and where maybe i'm getting ahead of things yeah. i mean so have no, you have you brought us to the end of you brought us to the end of rod serling's life and i want to say yeah. brad that was really masterfully handled well, i really well, enjoyed you. it i feel like i got to know him great uh, thank you, you. you know i i, I enjoyed jumping around a little bit. I think yeah. it's it's interesting that you focus so much on his work. I had no idea uh, that he was in the Pacific and that he saw mm-hmm. uh, action like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think a fascinating life, and if I pull anything out of it, 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 it's similar to the Kubrick episode where I go, man, it's just sometimes you just gotta grab it. You gotta right. go in and say, darn it, you're giving me a job. Yeah. Or yeah. I want to do this, we're going right. to do this this way. That, this uh, is yeah. what this is and i saw i saw real strong relationships to the kubrick episode as well and i feel like i'm pulling that out because I, I have to tell you kevin maybe you know this is more of a patreon discussion but like i've realized in doing this that like we are basically giving ourselves like a self-directed art history education here right i mean we're focusing on things you wouldn't focus on in art history but like and and i may i did see that relationship too it was like these two men just talked their way into everything. Now they backed it up too. You had yeah. to be able to back it up. Sure. But like the talking into it, themselves into it was hugely important. And yeah, I'm just waiting to see. I could just find somebody to talk my way into something. I don't, I don't yeah, know you just got to keep going. You got to keep doing the podcast. I'm going to go to podcast headquarters. <laughs> right. I'm, gonna think, do- <laughs> I'm going directly to Joe Rogan and I am demanding <laughs> that we, we start to get the numbers for Art of Darkness that we deserve. <laughs> Artofdarkpod.com. Right. Com, at Art yeah. of Dark Pod on the Bird website. We have a Patreon yeah. where we deconstruct every episode and we talk for an additional 20 or 30 minutes and we'll be doing that yeah. shortly. But we end every episode with an inquiry uh, and, and I'll ask you, Brad, yeah. what do you think uh, Rod Serling would be doing today if he was alive? I think he would still be writing television. I think I don't think he would have ever bothered ultimately to master any other format. I think he was a television brained person. So that's fine. It's a perfectly respectable, it's a perfectly respectable medium now. I, I, he, he would probably have loved to see the quality and the, oh, yeah. the, the fact that we're in this, this golden age of, of oh, yeah. television and streaming and one wonders, you know, would he have been pulled into uh, episodes maybe of Twin Peaks as a cameo, right. possibly. Right, right, uh, right. That lineage, you know, the X-Files directly, right. you can point right, right back. I mean, yeah. a huge cult- cultural footprint uh, that sure, he left sure. with that well, And you write about Black Mirror, too, like that. There was, they redid Twilight Zone, and, and I only saw one episode, and it seemed to be pretty good. Um, I didn't bother to, it's on one of the more obscure streaming sites, so I didn't, I didn't watch the rest of them. Um, so he's yeah. writing television, and he, he, it sounds like he would also be uh, justice-minded. Minded. He would be socially minded, so he might yeah. fit right in kind of into the milieu now. Yeah, I know? think he would find the current, I don't know exactly what side of things he would fall on um, in any particular issue, but I think he would find it exciting for sure. Yeah. Great. Yeah. 
Well, that was that was a lot of fun, Brad. Great. I'm excited. I haven't I haven't landed on uh, who I'm going to do next. Oh, uh, I think it might mystery. be. Yeah, I think it, I'm going to have to do Tennessee Williams at some okay. juncture. So it okay. may be Tennessee. Oh, that's a great uh, subject. That's going to be a good one. I just yeah. I want to do it justice and I want to give it enough time. Uh, mm-hmm. But this has been Art of Darkness. And uh, Brad, again, a lot of fun. Yeah. If you're into the show, follow us on Patreon. You get extra episodes, another 20 or 30 minutes. We're going to talk a little more about Rod Serling and how Brad researched this and all the rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, is there anything else you want to say to people, Brad? No, no, I don't think so. Watch, Go back and watch some Twilight Zone. Um, fo- uh, it's a Good Life is maybe my favorite. That's the one with the little boy monster. Um, but you know, honestly, just scroll through the premises. You can explain in a sentence. If you find a cool one, watch it. It's, I think they're great. So. I'm going to see if I can find the, uh, it's a good life intro and dump that into the end oh, of this yeah. episode. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah, that'd be great. Art of okay. Brad, I'll see you on the Patreon. All right. See you in a minute, sir. You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension, not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Tonight's story on the Twilight Zone is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. This, as you may recognize, is a map of the United States, and there's a little town there called Peaksville. On a given morning not too long ago, the rest of the world disappeared, and Peaksville was left all alone. Its inhabitants were never sure whether the world was destroyed and only Peaksville left untouched or whether the village had somehow been taken away. They were, on the other hand, sure of one thing, the cause. A monster had arrived in the village. Just by using his mind, he took away the automobiles, the electricity, the machines, because they displeased him. And he moved an entire community back into the Dark Ages. Just by using his mind. Now I'd like to introduce you to some of the people in Peaksville, Ohio. This is Mr. Fremont. It's in his farmhouse that the monster resides. This is Mrs. Fremont. And this is Aunt Amy, who probably had more control over the monster in the beginning than almost anyone. But one day she forgot. She began to sing aloud. Now the monster doesn't like singing, so his mind snapped at her and turned her into the smiling, vacant thing you're looking at now. She sings no more. And you'll note that the people in Peaksville, Ohio, have to smile. They have to think happy thoughts and say happy things because once displeased, the monster can wish them into a cornfield or change them into a grotesque walking horror. This particular monster can read minds, you see. He knows every thought, he can feel every emotion. Oh yes, I did forget something, didn't I? I forgot to introduce you to the monster. This is the monster. His name is Anthony Fremont. He's six years old with a cute little boy face and blue guileless eyes. But when those eyes look at you, you'd better start thinking happy thoughts because the mind behind them is absolutely in charge. This is the Twilight Zone.